punked me again. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Patrick Sullivan, art director at the Tiller Press nonfiction imprint at Simon & Schuster. He's here to chat with me about Raven Darkholm, the mercenary metamorph Mystique, also known as Mallory Brickman, Lini Sauber, Amichai Benvenisti, Ronnie Lake, Millicent Hardwick, Byron Biggs, Fox... Holt Adler, and Raven Wagner, among countless other names we haven't been fortunate enough to learn. Patrick, how are you today? I'm good. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for joining me. You were one of the first people to reach out when I said that I was doing this, and I'm glad that you are here. Well, right. And I think, and I heard this mentioned in your, on previous episodes already, but I was just absolutely convinced that this character would have already been taken if I didn't speak up. Yeah, I mean, you have to, really. And and uh, you're not wrong. There are a couple people who were late to the party on this one. <laughs> and uh, I was like, oh, well, she's taken. I mean, I guess it's, you know, it depends on your perspective of whether or not she is actually an X-Men. I wasn't even sure how your layout... Oh, yeah. No, the way I'm... So just for the record, I've talked about this on Twitter a little bit, but what I've decided is they don't have to be a mutant and they don't have to be a hero. They just have to primarily be an X-Men character. I can't wait till you're like six months in and someone does like a Val Cooper. I am excited to talk about Val Cooper today. I like Val Cooper. Okay, good. Me too. (laughs) But... um, Val Cooper is a good example, though, of a character I absolutely would be willing to cover. You know, the Warren episode last week was basically, in many ways, a Candy Southern episode, but I would do a Candy Southern episode. Like, I would do a Brian Braddock episode. I would do a Juggernaut episode. Those characters are not mutants, but they are X-Men characters, in my opinion. Uh, The one exception is I refuse to do an episode on either Wanda or Pietro until Marvel fixes them. Interesting. And makes the Magneto's children again. Okay. It's, it's the line in the sand that I'm making. And I'm holding my sweet Maximoff episodes hostage until right. Marvel meets my demands. What even are they right now? I mean, I... Uh, they're experiments of the high evolutionary. In the comics? Con- yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. And like, they're... I don't, I, don't re- I don't read a lot of Avengers anymore. Neither do I. Right. And, um... There's no real need to, in my opinion. I mean, listen, (laughs) (laughs) there's lots of people who love the Avengers. There are brilliant creative teams on the Avengers all the time. It's just never been my, it's just never been my thing. Yeah, I mean, I think we're aligned on like the, they're a cop thing and mostly the narrative with them and the X-Men just, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Their Mm -hmm. relationship to each other. So I, when I do read them, I prefer them to be very, very separate, but I was a huge Captain America person, ironically, given my well, he's very feeling. hot. <laughs> yeah, if and I there was I don't know it was, I I like you know the Indiana Jones of it all, but he mm-hmm. he's the only Avengers that I need, so I don't like even I don't want to know about the High Evolutionary. <laughs> no, I mean the High Evolutionary was always part of their backstory, but yeah. now it's just like uh, I don't because of course them being Magneto's children was itself a retcon, but yes. it was a good retcon. It's a good and one. It's one that they should have kept. So I don't really have any notes this week, but what I would like to do just before we begin, the Betsy Braddock fan base is extremely passionate and (laughs) I applaud them for that. I include myself among their numbers, so I always appreciate hearing from people who love the same characters I do, but 
I've had a couple messages now either on Twitter or via email just from people who seem to think that I am being harsh on that character or that I don't like that character. And if I didn't love that character, if I didn't care about that character, then I wouldn't talk about that character. I talk about that character because she's one of my favorite characters, has been since I was a small child. And there's a lot of messy stuff to deal with with that character. And the fact that she is a flawed, messy person is one of the things I find really interesting about her. I shouldn't have said the name of the person who wrote in last week. That was a mistake because I only read part of their email and a lot of their email was very respectful and, you know, thoughtful. And I just disagreed with it. In the future, if I am reading an email that I'm going to then loudly disagree with, I won't say the person's name. But I do just sort of want to say this general point. So here's my take on Betsy and Psylocke and Captain Britain and Kanon. The final word, except that I'm sure I'm going to talk about her relentlessly over the course of the rest of this podcast, but on this topic of why I feel the need to address the messiness very directly. I love this character. I think she's one of the most interesting characters at Marvel. She did not do anything wrong in the story vis-a-vis Kanon. However, as I've said on the podcast a couple of times, she's fictional. She's not real. So the fact of the matter is we have to look at the story in terms of the real world. And it's a story where a reserved white woman is transformed into a hypersexual Asian woman to add an exotic cool factor and appeal to the male gaze. There's a lot that's fucked up about that. To not address it would be wrong, even if Betsy wasn't wrong in the story. We have to talk about both things. In the story, Betsy's a victim, but as a character outside the story, she became a symbol of the way Western narratives colonize and exploit the bodies of Asian women. It would be irresponsible as a fan of the character not to discuss that directly. Betsy's case is especially complicated because she became exponentially more popular after she was transformed. The character of Psylocke became inextricably Asian in popular culture and important to many Asian fans, but Betsy herself actually wasn't, so it was a tricky situation. So when I say Betsy is a symbol of white privilege or that Betsy is a white woman who took an Asian woman's body or whatever, I'm not talking about Betsy as a living person in the story. I'm talking about Betsy as a fictional character who signifies things in reality. I think I've been pretty clear about the distinction on this podcast, but I just want to make that clear if I haven't, because in the story, she's absolutely a victim. And that's actually part of what's so pernicious about the story, because her racial appropriation isn't her fault and victimizes her and makes her the victim. So I'm very excited to see what happens to Captain Britain and Psylocke next. I think the ex-office took an almost impossible situation with 30 years of inertia and spun it into gold. And it is, to me, one of the most impressive things about Dawn of X. So if I come across as critical, it's because Betsy is one of my favorites and Chris Claremont is my favorite writer ever to handle the X-Men. And this is a case where I think he made a mistake. And I think that if we don't address it, we're not doing our due diligence as intelligent readers of the material. So that's my final thought on that. If you disagree with me, that is completely fine, but I'm not going to have more back and forth about this in the fan mail account or on the Twitter or whatever. It is okay if you don't like Betsy as Captain Britain. I don't agree, but we're just, we gotta not, we gotta not do that. I just, I don't want to go back and forth. And as I've said on the podcast, I represent the current writer on Excalibur. So I can't really get into the nitty gritty of arguing with people about the work of a writer I represent. That just doesn't feel professionally appropriate to me. I don't, I don't know what to, <laughs> how to phrase it, but it just, I'm not going to do that. And I'm not saying you have to like it. I'm just saying that's like the one writer at the moment that I am not going to argue with people about because it doesn't feel appropriate to me. So that's the final word on that. 
To pivot away from one character whose body was transformed against her will to a character who transforms her body all the time and really likes doing it, let's talk about Raven Darkhoom. <laughs> I love the umlaut over the O. Oh, yeah, it's often forgotten about. But... It is often forgotten, and I'm like, it's not Darkholm, it's Darkhoom. Right. So why don't you, Patrick, give us your backstory with the X-Men and specifically why you love this character and wanted to talk about this character today? Yeah, I mean, I think I think most people, like most people, it was a combination of the Jim Lee era boom and mm-hmm. the cartoon kind of colliding at the same time, sort of sort of an osmosis of X-Men. I feel like it was it was very strange to remember to to now have them be a little second fiddle to like the Avengers and everything. Cause when I was growing up, it was something sort of universally beloved. It was one of those like playground things that you could talk to like absolutely anybody about. It was gangbusters. I've always said that I, I think I've said it on the pod before, but the X-Men and the WWF later E were sort of the two <laughs> things that gay boys and straight boys could talk about on the playground together. Like well, we, it's they were funny the thing we had in common. I think that's exactly it. And I think, and that actually leads into why I like Mystique so much what I think she represents to me that's so successful about the X-Men specifically, but I was, I was just hungry for soap, I think as a child. Mm -hmm. And I remember like, just, I was an avid, uh, like fake sick day taker and (laughs) was just so desperate to get into a soap, like any soap. And I I would just try to pick one and I never, it was early shaky internet days. So you couldn't really like research much or or jump in, but the same, I felt the same way about wrestling because I'm such like a continuity Free. Yeah, I wanted to know all the lore. Always. Exactly. Lore has always been very, you know, seductive to me. The only episodes of Lost I have ever seen are <laughs> the finale and the one where it, it, full episodes. I've seen like bits and pieces because it was we were we were in college. I think we're about the same age when it was yeah. on. And so it was just sort of like on in the common rooms a lot. But the one full episode I watched before the finale was my boyfriend at the time really wanted me to watch with him and so I joined him to watch the one that Bai Ling is in where she gives Jack his tattoos which apparently is notorious as the worst episode of Lost oh god but here's what I'll say I have read the entire Lost wiki (laughs) I want to know the lore I always want to know the lore and because I had read the entire Lost wiki I quite enjoyed the finale it's all you need you know I was like oh you probably understood it more than like. Yeah, I wasn't looking people. for that many questions to <laughs> yeah. be answered because I felt like the lost wiki had already answered most of my questions. That's the way to watch most shows. Just read the wiki and then watch the finale. It's how I watch a lot of horror movies, frankly. <laughs> but yeah, I think that part of what always appealed to me about this, and I was lucky enough that my father had so much of the material in our house, is that. By the time I came to it in the 90s, there were already 30 years of things to look at, you know? And so it was this huge, vast treasure trove of lore. And as an obsessive compulsive child, all I wanted to do was learn every single thing about every single one of these characters, particularly the women. Yes. Because every small homosexual boy from the 90s knows that the female X-Men are the coolest characters in the world. In the world. Mystique was always interesting to me because she's just very visually arresting and she's so mean and good at what she does. And I always found that exciting. And there were mysteries about her. When we were young, they still hadn't quite 
figured out everything with her and Nightcrawler. So there was a lot, uh, at least on the page. So there yeah. was still a lot of ambiguity and mystery about the character. What is uh, your sort of mystique origin story specifically? Right. So I, I, I remember like trying to be, when I really started getting interested in it and started my brother's friend um, had like a ton of comics and that I would just write full through when we were at their house together and they were hanging out and, and I was younger than them. So I was like hanging out in the basement. And I would just mm-hmm. read his X-Men comics and play with his uh, whoopee action figure, for his, his Guinan action figure. Love Guinan. Another yeah. next generation, also a really key Oh, absolutely. Childhood in the 90s it's, moment. It's the women and it's the regalia and it's, yeah. but All they, of Counselor Troy's outfit. Exactly. But I saw, I just I just was vis- visibly struck by the design. And I remember being so mm-hmm. kind of intoxicated by it. And she was kind of the one of the first point people that I would, I would buy, like the encyclopedias. And I would buy whatever character biographies I could find and she was the one that I kind of wanted to learn the most about because it seemed I I was only got like slivers of her through like the issues that I did have right and when what what she kind of epitomized to me and beyond like the cool queer stuff which I'm sure we'll get to was which I don't even know if I like registered at the time when I was young but it was just that she had the most soapy arcs and she had the most there was the most mystery and the most interpersonal drama for me. Like that was the most effective, even if there was like some grand scheme or some grand thing that Magneto was trying to pull off. Hers always Mm -hmm. seemed ultimately quite personal. And, and that drove the story so much more interestingly to me and more powerfully to me. Well, I've talked about this with my dad. We were just talking about it because he's been enjoying the podcast and he's been rereading the sixties stuff right now, which is where he started. And, he had this sort of epiphany that I think is somewhat true, which is that the reason that the 60s X-Men book failed was not that it was a bad book, but it was instead rather that the villains are not good. You know, Magneto is not an interesting character until Claremont gets a hold of him. No. The Sentinels are cool, but they're not people. So there's only so much you can do with them. And Juggernaut is cool, but talk about personal. I mean, he's just sort of an id. He doesn't think very much. He's possessed and doing his juggernaut thing, and he's not very smart to begin with. So really, it's not until the Claremont period that you get good villains for the X-Men. And I think it's so important for a superhero to have iconic villains. If you look at the superheroes who have penetrated pop culture most thoroughly, they always have at least one so with superman it's lex Luthor. really that's that's really the one batman though is bigger than superman and it's because he has like 20 that are complete bangers right and then spider-man also has a ton of memorable ones and that made him marvel's most popular character immediately from the 60s on the x-men become one of those books in the 70s and 80s because Claremont reinvents Magneto and makes him interesting, which is a feat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, because he's just so flat in the 60s. And then introduces the Hellfire Club, introduces the Marauders, introduces Mr. Sinister, and introduces Mystique's Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, which is just better than Magneto's ever was. Yeah, it's incredible. All of those characters have something to bring to the table, 
Pyro and Avalanche have scary powers. Destiny is a character who was like nothing I had ever really seen in a superhero book. It's so strange. The whole plot with Rogue is a little bit of a retread of the plot with the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, but she is a more interesting character than they are, frankly, at least in terms of their 60s incarnations. And whereas Wanda and Pietro didn't like Magneto, Rogue has this very complicated relationship with Mystique and Destiny and doesn't really want to leave them. Mm-hmm. The relationships there are more complicated and it becomes much more interesting. The way the Brotherhood turns into Freedom Force and the way that all of that happens. She just became this really indelible figure very quickly. And I would say the only other character who's sort of on that level in terms of this is an iconic X-Men villain is Apocalypse, who Louise Simonson introduces around the same time in in the mid-80s. Once you had all of those lined up, like the last set of characters that really makes a big impact that way is on his way out the door, Claremont creates the Acolytes when Magneto's evil again. Right. And since then, Cassandra Nova is the big one that worked, I think. I'm trying to think of anything since then that's... But anything that's been on that level where you're like, this character's going to be around forever because it's such an iconic villain, I don't know. And that's... Not unusual. I mean, it's if you look at Batman's rogues gallery, almost all of the really strong characters were introduced in the 80s or earlier. Harley Quinn is really the big exception to that because she's introduced in in the cartoon. I'm still waiting for the ventriloquist doll mob boss to pop (laughs) off in wider cultural vernacular. The the ventriloquist is a a spooky one. It's so good. It's my favorite one. I love any time, not that this is welcome to the ventriloquist podcast, but right. uh, my any time that like they have to blindfold the doll or whatever instead of the guy. Instead I of mean, the guy, because the guy will I act mean, like he's blind if the doll is blindfolded. It's so good. It's but so that's good. what I'm saying. The Batman characters are really recognizable. And by contrast, a character like Wonder Woman, although she has this pop culture iconic thing as a symbol has never been that enduring a superhero in popular culture generally in terms of her comic book in part because she doesn't have a rogues gallery like that Cersei is fun sometimes the cheetah is fun sometimes neither of them is really a match for Wonder Woman and it's never quite worked I mean I was gagged by cheetah in from like Super Friends era. I mean, Cheetah is fierce and fun. Yeah, but, but it seems small. It always seems a little small. It's like yeah, her she's low. Stakes. She's a god, and there's this cat lady. Yeah, and then the Barbara Ann Minerva version after the crisis. That's the one who who's like a real Cheetah lady. As I opposed prefer to that. Like, I don't want the suit. human face. Right. She is more of a match, but it just I don't know. I liked how Rucka wrote her, but. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I just don't feel like that character's ever had a proper rogues gallery. And the Avengers have the same problem. Like, who cares about Baron Zemo? No one. <laughs> who cares about the Mandarin? No I, one. Oh, oh, God. I like the The look. Red Skull is good. The Red Skull is He's really about good. it. And he's a holdover from the 40s. The only 60s villains at Marvel who truly nail it are the Spider-Man villains and Doctor Doom. Well, I think one of the things that, and well, I mean, I guess Doom would probably fall into this, but one of the things that I think, to tie it back to Mystique, that I find, I found really successful about her is that I I prefer all of this, even though this is a crazy thing to say, I prefer all of it when it's a little smaller. Mm -hmm. And magic has always been, like, as a concept, something that I struggle a little bit with in X-Men specifically. 
Um, like I get it, and I, you know, I, I can accept it from certain places. Certain writers. How are you feeling about Ten of Swords? I'm. I haven't started Ten of Swords. Oh, okay. Well, then we won't. I know, but Apocalypse is one of the is one of the ones that I I have to believe it. I think is the mm-hmm. case, which I think is probably true of you know magic, yeah, magic and fiction anywhere. And I already understand what a mutant is and what it how it works in that world. And what I've always loved about Mystique is how incredible her powers are, but how limited they are as well. That I've always loved that they resisted the fact that she can't do other people's powers or whatnot. It's just mm-hmm. the look. And I think that would have been such an easy thing for them to do. Um, and not having to do it and have it mostly be combat and like a little gun here and there or a little dagger is in and it's all her wits. Yeah, I've never liked, sometimes it's inconsistent, I've never liked when Mystique, she never gets to copy powers, but I've never liked when she has the ability to like make a tentacle or like be an animal or whatever. I don't like when anyone makes a tentacle. I'm I'm really anti-tentacle. But you get what I mean, like when she makes claws or something, like I I don't think she should be able to do that. No, but like even like... I'm really anti-tentacle. Like, no tentacles. No, Callisto's, I'm, I'm with, Callisto's, uh, even like... Love Callisto. Tentacle period Callisto is not my no. favorite Callisto. No. no, even in The Last Airbender when she does her water arm things, I hate that shit. Don't like that? You're not I don't like that. a tentacle. I don't like a tentacle. Listen, I get it. I get it. There's a reason why we're freaked out by squids and octopuses and things oh, with tentacles because they they look like space aliens and it's, it's a not. Space, a full space I mean, there's a whole cosmic horror genre that erupted from the idea that tentacles are distressing. So, right. you know, and racism and also. racist. But, so yeah, but you know, like yeah, it was it was racist. the the yeah the Lovecraftian uh, blend of I'm a racist and I hate, and I hate shellfish squids. and mollusks. Yeah, right. is sort of the the key there but yeah i agree i've always liked that it's just a visual because you get into situations where it's like who's the real storm and it's like well the real storm can make a lightning bolt so mystique has to be smarter than that right she can't really pull the you don't know which one of us is the real one Mm because they always have a power if it's an x-man that they can just whip out that mystique can't do so her schemes have to be more complicated than that and actually one of the things that's really cool about that is that most of the time she poses as a regular human Mm -hmm. like we don't even know if raven darkholm is her real name right i think it probably is isn't that her government it wasn't that her yeah it's when she's introduced so she's introduced actually she's really one of the chris claremont characters that he took along with him everywhere she's introduced in ms marvel the carol danvers book in the 70s and she is basically Carol's arch nemesis. She, she like that hates is Carol. Yeah, she fucking hates <laughs> Carol so Danvers funny. because destiny has right. foreseen that Carol will, in some way, Her harm rogue. rogue. So, for people who are totally new to this character, the general gist of Mystique, and we'll get to this in the character file, is Mystique is a shapeshifter. Mystique is a blue lady who can shapeshift into non-blue forms. And when we meet her, she looks actually quite a bit older than she looks later on. They sexy her up over time, basically. Which I have thoughts about sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll continue. We'll get there. But Mystique is introduced as this terrorist who works in a partnership with another character called destiny and destiny is an old woman in a creepy gold mask with incredible legs for a woman who looks about a hundred when she takes her mask off they have clearly been together for a long time and together they have adopted a daughter 
rogue who has the mutant power to absorb the memories and personality and mutant power or actually any power she can do it to avengers too of anyone she touches with her bare skin and she can't control it so they're very protective of her because she has this uncontrollable weird power but at the same time they are training her to be part of their terrorist organization so it's a slightly complicated dynamic where do you fall in the choose your own canon of when they adopt her? Is she like a baby that they don't know anything about? Or So in X-Men Unlimited 4, which is the one where you find out that Mystique is Nightcrawler's mother. Yeah. It's like a thing where they got her as an older, as like a teenager who already had her powers. Post Cody. Post Cody, right. I don't like that. And Scott Lobdell <laughs> admitted that it was a mistake. Sure. There are many more instances in the classic stuff indicating that Mystique and Destiny adopt Rogue when she is a small child. Just like she's fully not a baby, out of the but of their she's heart. she's yeah, she's this like little urchin. Does she have the gray streak? Yes, actually, as, no. As a in child. the comics, in the comics, it's just natural. Yeah, as a little baby, she has this little baby Stacy London. Yeah, look. exactly. A little little. They said she's Richard serving. Madden, Stacy London kind of yeah. vibe. Yeah. <laughs> Logan Lerman now too. Yeah, there are so many. Uh, James McAvoy has one too. I'm fully, I want one. I'm fully gray, so I don't have the streak. Uh, see, I would. Like, I I just want a little more. Like it's coming in at my temples a little, which is great because yeah. having grown up on Marvel comics, I, I think mean, of that as like the sexiest possible that's, that's, trait. That's but they haven't like fully gone, so I just sure. don't know. My father was very gray at the age I am now, so I don't really know. Mine's what's going fully on. gray, and I'm following in his. But weren't you a redhead? Yeah, fully red. So that's sad because I love a ginge. See, it, it, you know, I hated it growing up. Uh, and now, and then I was relieved. Now you miss Grey it. Gray was good, killing it. And now like everyone's fucking hot for Archie. And it I always sad. was hot for redheads. God redheads are one of my, I have a thing. I've it's always just, said people were can't meaner explain it. about being redhead than they ever were about being a faggot. <laughs> well, if we had known each other, I would have complimented you on oh, your red hair because I, I think it's sexy. Well. So point is to go back <laughs> yes to go back speaking of redheads mystique i definitely prefer the version where they had her before this because if they adopt her after she has her powers then it's more like they're you they Absolutely. saw an opportunity and they're using her right whereas i like the idea that they took this child in because they were a lesbian couple who wanted a child and that then they didn't even know she was a mutant right you know, Destiny probably foresaw that she would well, be so a mutant. That's but... my thing, is that I, I, cause I agree with you with one um, exception, is that I also like that they get her when she's a baby, but that because of who Destiny is, yeah, um, that and because of everything that Rogue goes through with them, that she always has a bit of a doubt about whether right. and, and why they adopted her in the first place. And that's in part because of ways that Destiny's powers were expanded post facto, because in the original stuff with them, Destiny's precognition is very short form. Yeah, she has like She punches. only really sees like, <laughs> yeah, like at most a couple months into the yeah. future. Yeah. And as the story went on, it became clear that sometimes she sees way far into the future. And then eventually, long after she's dead, the X-Men go out hunting for her diaries, which detail the entire future of mutant kind and things yes. like that. Right. And in the current run by Hickman, Moira is ensuring that Destiny does not get resurrected because Destiny is the most powerful precog in the world and is the only person who can look at Moira and understand what Moira is. Right. 
about that is the implication in the Dawn of X stuff that Destiny can't be resurrected because, or they don't want her to be resurrected because Moira knows that she knows that the mutants will always fail and that they'll always be doomed. Yes, that is exactly why. Brutal. (laughs) Because she believes that if the precogs, especially one like Destiny, who is known for her accuracy, tell people that, that Krakoa will fail. Yes. And Moira's experience of her nine previous lives is that no matter what she tries, the mutants lose. Right. And in one of those lives, Destiny made it very clear that Moira needed to work a little harder. So there's a uh, right. there's a personal vendetta a little bit between Moira and Destiny, but also it's just that Moira's power part of it is that no one can perceive her as a mutant. And so when Destiny looks at her, she sees this anomaly, this void in creation. That's so good. It's so good. <laughs> God, Dawn of X is so good. Dawn of X is so good. So if I didn't mention this, Destiny's blind. Yeah. So she only sees the future is the thing. But she's usually seeing like two seconds into the future as opposed to far into the future. I love her look in Evolution is like blind lady from a, a 90s drama, like Boston Public yeah, or something. She has like, like her little haircut. I like in Evolution that they make her young and sexy. Like, you know, she's like 45 probably. She but She looks like the mom from like my so-called life or something. She she's... looks like... Demi Moore playing Destiny. It's yeah. like a very specific vibe crop, where it's like a little short alley, little, sh- little pixie cut yeah. kind of bob look. Flirty little pixie cut and like. Yeah, and some sunglasses. Glasses. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the things I've always really liked about Mystique and Destiny is that Mystique, by nature of her power, is ageless. And Destiny looks about a thousand years old. And right. Mystique still thinks that she's the most beautiful person she's ever seen. Sarah Paulson, Holland Taylor. It's very Sarah Paulson and Holland Taylor, except that they are actually the same age. Sarah Paulson and Holland Taylor. <laughs> no, no. I mean, Mystique and Destiny. So yeah, yeah, yeah. there is this thing where it's kind of like the vampire problem where in a vampire romance, it's like, well, they'll stay at the same age forever and I'm going to get old and ugly. And it's like, Mystique could not care less about right. that. Well, because she's she has to be so, I mean, if you lived in that experience in her body you you must become so disconnected to like having a body outside appearances are just not yeah are not your thing that matter which brings me to a question that i think is worth discussing before the character file jesse adkins writes hi there i'm a big fan of the show and i had a question for your mystique episode I'm a relatively new X-Men reader, and I was wondering if the romantic relationship between Mystique and Destiny was something the average reader could infer from the Claremont run. I only started reading X-Men books during the Dawn of X era, so I was lucky enough to get the Bring Back My Wife line. So good. So good. I screamed. But you mentioned on a previous episode that Claremont was forced to use an antiquated term to get the point across. Do you think the average reader understood the implication? What about the average queer reader? Either way, as a queer woman myself, I'm really excited about the representation we're starting to see in Dawn of X. And thanks for making such a fun podcast. I'm a sucker for analyzing comics through a queer lens, so I've been absolutely loving Cerebro. Thank you, Jesse. I really appreciate that. Thank you for writing in. So I've said this in the podcast before. There was an issue with the Comics Code Authority and homosexuality. And by the 90s, we weren't worried about the Comics Code Authority anymore. But even with the Comics Code Authority, there were ways you could do stuff. But Jim Shooter, who was the editor-in-chief at the time, explicitly said, no gay characters. He also wrote an issue of The Hulk that's, like, weird and homophobic. So I think it was just a personal problem with him. 
I need to know what Gabe, Hulk Gabash. <laughs> it's no, it's like some, he's at a gym and like some guys try to rape him. It's like really, oh my God. it's wild. Yeah, it's truly wild. Like there can't be any gay characters in the Marvel universe, but there can be gay rapists in this one issue of the Hulk I wrote. So yeah, it's, that's pretty nuts. Uh, and <laughs> anyway, Jim Shooter is a weird character, but. In terms of Mystique and Destiny's relationship, I think that a lot of people did not get it because it was something that Claremont was not allowed to say on the page. However, she is one of the first queer characters to be textually a queer character in comic books in terms of the big two comic books, period. I think that if you knew any gay people, if you knew any gay people, if you were a familiar with the idea of lesbians, yeah. it's extremely, extremely clear that they are a couple. They have adopted a child together. And then in 1990, in Uncanny X-Men 265, the Shadow King refers to Destiny as Mystique's Leman, which is an archaic word that means lover paramour and by that point shooter was gone tom defalco was the editor-in-chief by then but i think that claremont still was not allowed to say it and that moment in 1990 is textual and certainly the internet was around-ish by then and fans at conventions were around by then that was something that spread very quickly. What that word meant, the fact that it was a confirmation that Mystique and Destiny were gay or were bisexual or whatever you wanted to call them, the fact that they were a couple. So I would say it's something that fans knew if you were in nerd circles pretty early vis-a-vis -vis Big Two Comics. It's before North Star. It's before the Pied Piper in Flash. It's before any of those really big characters where it, where it was a moment. Well, there's also like a very storied history. There's a real tradition that they're operating in, even though it's not at their, it's not their preferred way of doing it. I'm sure they would have loved to just frankly say exactly who they are. Right. But, but like the secret lesbians and, you know, this, the queer subtext is obviously I, I like progress. I like what we have now. Same, but, but, but it was fun to have that, yes. you know, these things that were clearly coded and, like you said, if you just knew a gay person, you understood this. And they, they kind of hide behind sort of these, an armor of like conventional wisdom of like, well, she's old and she's blue and they're two women. Like, they're obviously not fucking just because they have this baby in the house. But like, to us, it's like, of course they are. <laughs> yeah. I think part of why Destiny is so physically old is to desexualize her a little bit for the reader, even though she's very sexy in her costume. Yeah, when to us it's like, oh, that's even more reason. That to makes think it that weirder, fucking. right? Yeah. She's real well preserved. Like yeah. this is a lady, this is an old ass crone who fucks and is like, the vibe that you get. Just like Back to the Future, it's like this has to be erotic. Why else are they right. hanging out? <laughs> right. Right. That is the vibe. I think that particularly once you find out that Mystique and Destiny were born in the 19th century. Mystique might even be older than that, actually. We don't know how old Mystique is. I like the idea that she might not know either, that you kind of forget mm. a little bit. I always yeah, find that kind I of like that sexy too. and mysterious. Well, I like the idea that, like we said... Raven Darkholm is the identity we meet her in when she's working for DARPA with Valerie Cooper. 
And it's just sort of generally assumed to be her real name because it's what Destiny calls her. But it's entirely possible that she doesn't remember what her original name was. Oh, yeah. I used to tell people my name is all sorts of things. Yeah. I like that. I like the mystery of that. And I like that we don't know exactly how old she is because it means that there is always potential for new stories. You can always do a new story with Mystique before well that was the other thing that i think drew me to her because i i don't know but did you ever read any like the novels like the x-men novels i read the one about sauron i think that's oh god the one i remember it's not, not for, good well i can't imagine i don't i'm sure I'm, I'm, sauron's well, fun but yeah not a super serious prose novel subject well sauron i i mean not to the, the Sauron voice performance on the animated series, <laughs> In the animated series. really, really <laughs> turned me off of that fucking dragon for the rest of my yeah. life. But I'm he's also a pterodactyl. Like, Please be polite about his <laughs> lizard species. <laughs> Sorry, that's okay. Um, but it, the yeah, that pterodactyl doesn't do much for me. But Savage Land is a whole other. It's I don't know. It doesn't necessarily fit in my framework. But I always liked that you could just sort of characters like that because of how much continuity it is. It's not. You know, the prequel doesn't necessarily the concept of like going back and and showing them an earlier story doesn't isn't as frustrating or or kind of fraudulent as it would be for some other characters like hers works. And I love like her continued past with Wolverine and Captain America. Yeah, that that she and Wolverine and Sabretooth and Captain America have known each other for almost 100 years now is great. This novel that I read in middle school um, about them doing like some special ops team in germany or something it's like from that period when she was like working with Sabretooth or whatever i love that Sabretooth knocks her up when she's Lenny zauber Lenny zauber and doesn't know no. that he ever fucked mystique she does a That's roxy like hilarious later me. in life to be like yeah to be like yes. oh because because when she finishes that mission she kills the real Lenny zauber and leaves her yeah. body to be found yeah so Victor Creed thinks he was just fucking this German spy and then she died. And Mystique's like, oh, no, actually you were fucking me and I was shapeshifted into her and then I killed her. She's and we really, have a child, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> she's, really, she's really good at, she's very inventive at the the fake death because it's not just like, you know, all of them are faking their deaths every Tuesday. But like, yeah. I love But Mystique's really good at faking other, other people's, people's deaths, deaths and then That's impersonating what I mean. them That's or whatever. What I mean. Yeah, no, it's great. That's a gag. It's always a gag. And it's like it's not like she was deceiving Sabretooth really cuz he never met the actual Lini Zauber. He only ever met Mystique who had taken over her life. Yes. My favorite thing that comes out of them being old (laughs) is the reveal in extreme x-men because here's the thing destiny's real name is irene adler and always has been it's actually irene adler in the earliest stuff they put a little accent on it and that is how the character in scandal and bohemia's name is actually supposed to be pronounced but adaptations have dropped that because we don't say irene anymore we just say irene thank god (laughs) yeah no i know i'm not a i'm not a big fan well it's like celine actually that's actually my justification for why my pronunciation of celine is acceptable because i think in nova roma it would make sense for her to be not celine gallio we'll talk about that in the celine episode absolutely but she should be called demisha celine demisha celini but once she moves to America, she anglicizes the pronunciation. So Absolutely. I can call her Celine and it's fine. So Irene similarly goes from Austria to America and starts going by Irene. But the point is, her name is Irene Adler, like the character from Sherlock Holmes. Do you think and she is the character from Sherlock Holmes? It has been confirmed that she is the oh, character okay, okay, from okay. Sherlock Holmes. Okay. In 
2000, when Claremont comes back to the books, Mm -hmm. he reveals that she is that character. And because she's public domain, you can. Also, it's Irene Adler and Raven Darkholm. And it's revealed that when they met, Mystique was using a male presentation Mm -hmm. and was working as a detective. Right. And the implication is that Mystique (laughs) is Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes and Irene Adler got together and were actually immortal mutants and Sherlock was a woman and Mm -hmm. they've been lesbian terrorists for the last hundred years. I love that. We frankly have to stand. Oh, yeah. Moffat wishes. Yeah, truly. Truly. Mm -hmm. I also love that over the course of their long history, every now and then they would break up but they always wound up back together. And so like when they're apart, Destiny had children and grandchildren and Mystique had children and grandchildren. They had all these other relationships because they were both bisexual. And what that creates is in the present, especially after Destiny's dead, Mystique has this very deep attachment to making sure that Destiny's grandchildren and children are taken care of. Oh, what's that twink's name? Trevor Chase. Trevor Chase. (laughs) Please welcome to the stage. Please welcome to the stage. Trevor Chase, Destiny's grandson. I think that that is a good moment to go into the Cerebro character file on Mystique. This is a character who has been around for a while and who also has been subject to about a billion retcons because of the nature of being an immortal character. So we're going in publication history order. We're going to start with Ms. Marvel and I am going to try my best, but this (laughs) may be a little confusing. The nice thing about Mystique is she lies constantly and she's an unreliable narrator. So hot Cheetos and lies. Yeah. So apart from the things that have happened in the actual stories, all of her backstory stuff, you can kind of take or leave. So I'm going to jump right into that now, and then we will come back to talk about our favorite Mystique storylines. X-Men, X-Men. The mutant terrorist Mystique, known by countless aliases, but most often using the civilian name Raven Darkhoom, is one of the most iconic villains in the X-Men franchise. Created by writer Chris Claremont and artist Dave Cockrum, she made her debut as the arch-nemesis of the superheroine Carol Danvers, then known as Ms. Marvel, in the 70s solo series by that name. First appearing in May 1978's Ms. Marvel 16, Mystique is a calculating shapeshifter who has infiltrated the United States government under the name Raven Darkholm, becoming the deputy director of DARPA at the U.S. Department of Defense, and exploiting that position to become a powerful force in the criminal underworld. Like her son Nightcrawler, Mystique was not designed for the X-Men, or even for Ms. Marvel. She was a doodle Dave Cockrum had casually drawn while hanging out at the Marvel offices with his future wife, Marvel staffer Patty Greer, later Patty Cockrum, and colorist Andy Yanchis. Greer and Yanchis liked the design and decided to color it in an outlandish way, with blue skin and bright red hair. They hung the drawing on the wall of the office, and when Chris Claremont saw it, he was captivated. In an interview with George Corey years later, Patty Cockrum recalled Claremont's excited reaction. I want her. Who is she? What's her name? What does she do? All Dave Cockrum had to offer him was, she's a pretty lady. So it fell to Claremont to name the character and devise her superhuman power of flawless humanoid shapeshifting. The mystique design first appears in Ms. Marvel 18, where she's drawn by Jim Mooney. In these early stories, Mystique's schemes are not enormously focused beyond personal advancement through the sale of government secrets. Mystique's hatred of Carol Danvers is not initially explained, but clearly runs deep. Eventually, after some time spent spying on Danvers, both in her civilian identity and as Ms. Marvel, she assumes Carol's form via shapeshifting and meets up with the heroine's boyfriend, Michael Barnett. 
She then savagely beats Barnett to death while shapeshifted into Carol, an act Danvers is later horrified to witness in a hologram reconstruction of the crime. The Ms. Marvel title was canceled not long afterward, and Chris Claremont decided to bring Mystique and Carol Danvers, along with Destiny and Rogue, two characters scripted for Ms. Marvel issues that ultimately went unproduced, over to his more successful title, Uncanny X-Men. First, in the famous 1981 storyline Days of Future Past, Mystique forms a new incarnation of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, enlisting classic 60s villain The Blob and new characters Destiny, Pyro, and Avalanche. The Brotherhood attempts to assassinate Senator Robert Kelly, an anti-mutant politician who has sponsored the Mutant Registration Act. The X-Men are warned of the Brotherhood's plan by Kate Pride, the time-traveling future self of their teenage student Kitty Pride. In Kate's timeline, Mystique succeeded, and the assassination of Kelly, whose anti-mutant politics are born out of fear, but who is at core a reasonable man, accelerated anti-mutant sentiment dramatically among the general public, leading to the election of a hardline bigoted candidate in the next presidential election, and ultimately a dystopian future where mutants have been brutalized by sentinel robots and slaughtered in concentration camps. With Kate's insight, the X-Men are able to stop the Brotherhood, save Senator Kelly's life, and avert the bad future from coming to pass. During the battle, the X-Men Nightcrawler is startled to see Mystique's true form, and how closely it resembles his own. Mystique tells him to question his adoptive mother, the Romani sorceress Margali Sardish. It is soon revealed that Mystique's enmity for Carol Danvers stems from an unusual source, her partner in crime Destiny, real name Irene Adler, whose mutant power of precognition enables her to predict potential future timelines with startling accuracy. Destiny and Mystique share an adopted daughter, the teenage mutant known only as Rogue, who has an uncontrollable power. Rogue absorbs the memories, personality, and any superhuman powers of anyone she makes skin-to-skin contact with, leaving the victim comatose or dead if touched for too long. Destiny has foreseen that Carol Danvers will somehow bring harm to Rogue. While Mystique is a ruthless killer without mercy or sentiment, she bears a fierce love for Destiny and their daughter, and decided to eliminate Danvers before anything bad happened to Rogue. Off-panel, in issues scripted for the cancelled Ms. Marvel, but ultimately unpublished until many years later, Rogue attempts to free the captured members of the Brotherhood by absorbing Ms. Marvel's powers. She attacks Carol Danvers at her home, and the battle proves more difficult than Rogue expected. She accidentally maintains contact with Carol for too long, and permanently absorbs Carol's powers, psyche, and memories. She gains the superhuman strength, durability, and flying power of Ms. Marvel, but is left with a perfect copy of Carol's personality fighting her own for dominance in her mind. She maintains control at first, but after a few schemes with her mothers, she is targeted by the villain Mastermind. He uses his illusory powers to exacerbate Rogue's personality confusion, seeking revenge on Mystique for some unknown slight in the past. Rogue becomes desperate and disappears without a word, going to the X-Men in the hopes that Professor Xavier can restore her sanity. Mystique, believing Xavier has brainwashed Rogue, leads her brotherhood in an attack on the X-Men. It's Rogue who ultimately convinces Mystique to relent, explaining that she believes Xavier, as the world's most powerful known telepath, is the only person who can help her process the trauma of accidentally uploading another woman's entire mind into her own. It becomes clear all at once that this is the harm to Rogue that Destiny foresaw Carol Danvers causing, and that by attempting to put a stop to that potential harm, Mystique actually ensured it came to pass. Reluctantly, Mystique allows Rogue to remain with the X-Men, electing to trust that Xavier really has the girl's best interests at heart. Not long afterward, in her human identity as DARPA Deputy Director Raven Darkholma, Mystique travels with National Security Council official Valerie Cooper to meet with Forge, a mutant inventor who is using his gift to design new weapons for the U.S. government. He has developed a neutralizing gun that can strip the superhuman powers from a mutant. 
Valerie Cooper and her colleague Henry Peter Gyrick intend to use the gun to depower Rogue, who after absorbing Ms. Marvel's powers is now considered a top-level terrorist threat. Raven objects, noting that Forge has not had time to test the weapon, but her protests are ignored. Meeting with Destiny, Mystique wonders if perhaps their daughter would be better off without her powers. Destiny insists that such a thing would have to be Rogue's choice, and also foresees that whomever tries to help Rogue will suffer the fate intended for her, losing their own powers instead. Mystique, pretending to help the X-Men out of concern for Rogue, gives Storm information on where to find her, and just as Irene predicted, Storm is the one who loses her powers. About a year later, in 1985's Uncanny X-Men 199, Mystique approaches Valerie Cooper with a proposition. In exchange for a full pardon for herself and the Brotherhood, she offers the team services to the United States government as their official superhero team, to handle mutant problems no questions asked. Cooper agrees to the proposition, provided that Mystique and her Brotherhood, now renamed Freedom Force, are able to capture the fugitive Magneto and bring him to trial. They succeed and officially become government agents. After a number of missions for the government, Destiny comes to Mystique with a terrible vision. She has foreseen that all of the X-Men, including Rogue if she accompanies them, will soon die in a conflict in Dallas. Mystique tries to convince Rogue to abandon the team, but she refuses, and so Freedom Force follows the X-Men to Dallas in an attempt to arrest them and prevent whatever disaster Destiny has foreseen. Thus begins the 1988 franchise-wide event Fall of the Mutants, in which the X-Men and Freedom Force team up to defend Dallas from the magical machinations of the cosmic being called the Adversary. In the climax of the event, the mutant inventor Forge, also a Cheyenne mystic, requires the sacrifice of nine souls to banish the adversary. The X-Men and their friend Madeline Pryor agree to sacrifice themselves, and the whole world watches on television as the X-Men die. Enraged and devastated with grief, Mystique screams at Forge that he is a murderer. She does not know that the omniversal guardian Roma has actually resurrected the X-Men and Madeline Pryor, who decide to let the world believe they are still dead in order to operate undercover. Believing her daughter is gone forever, Mystique returns to her work with Freedom Force. The team chafes at some of their assignments, like enforcing Senator Kelly's Mutant Registration Act, and even rescuing the senator himself from a kidnapping. They even help protect the secret that the government is holding mutant children captive. Finally, Mystique reaches her breaking point when Valerie Cooper orders Freedom Force to aid Forge in defending Muir Island from the cyborg supervillains called the Reavers. Destiny tells Mystique that she and Forge have futures that are intimately intertwined, which Mystique refuses to believe, especially after Forge is unable to protect Destiny from the villain Legion, who kills her. Destiny had foreseen her own death, but elected not to tell Mystique about it. Mystique takes some time off to grieve and scatters Destiny's ashes at sea. In 1990's Uncanny X-Men 266, Mystique finds a letter from Destiny written before her death, which warns her that Valerie Cooper will be possessed by the evil telepath the Shadow King and attempt to kill her. Cooper arrives soon afterward, and Mystique makes no attempt to defend herself, embracing her death the same way Destiny did. Valerie Cooper reports to the news media that Mystique is dead, but the reader later learns this is actually Mystique impersonating Cooper. Valerie managed to resist the Shadow King's control and shot herself instead of Mystique. She was rushed to the hospital, and Mystique conspired with S.H.I.E.L.D. director Nick Fury, shapeshifting into Cooper and allowing herself to be hypnotized into the belief that she is the genuine article. Mystique operates as Valerie Cooper for some time, and the hypnosis is powerful enough to fool the Shadow King. Mystique, as Valerie, eventually manages to throw him off guard, and the X-Men are ultimately able to defeat him. With her hypnotic state lifted, Mystique reunites with Rogue, who is angry that Mystique allowed her to believe she was dead. Mystique, quite reasonably, points out that Rogue did the same thing after Fall of the Mutants, and this is the first time they've seen each other since that day in Dallas. Each in tears, they embrace once again as mother and daughter. 
While she was posing as Valerie Cooper, Mystique's Freedom Force had fallen apart. Cooper establishes a new government-sponsored mutant team with the former X-Men Havoc and Polaris, which takes the name X-Factor. In this period, Chris Claremont, the writer who had created Mystique and made her one of his signature characters, left the X-Men franchise after 16 years. Mystique disappears, having no interest in continued government service, and after an adventure with Wolverine where they travel to the Mojoverse and reset the space-time continuum, don't worry about it, she becomes a guest at the Xavier Mansion. She seems to suffer a mental breakdown, and Forge, whose relationship with Storm has fizzled out, decides to leave the team and take Mystique with him back to Dallas, where he hopes to help her heal. Forge and Mystique grow close, as Destiny once predicted they would. She saves his life when the time-traveling assassin Trevor Fitzroy attempts to kill him. Leaving Dallas, she resurfaces in Paris in the 1993 Sabretooth miniseries by Larry Hama. The former marauder Sabretooth, Victor Creed, has a bomb implanted in his chest by a mysterious man called the Tribune, who then blackmails him into assassinating Mystique. Sabretooth is confused when he recognizes Mystique's scent, and she reveals that he knew her decades before, when she was using the identity of the German spy Lini Sauber. As Lini, Mystique had a sexual relationship with Sabretooth. He's about to kill her regardless, but is startled when Mystique informs him that as Lini Sauber, she bore his child, a boy she named Graydon Creed, and later abandoned when he proved not to be a mutant. She guesses correctly that Graydon is the Tribune who has caused all of this trouble in the first place. When Wolverine sees a photo of Graydon, he recognizes the man as the leader of the anti-mutant terrorist group the Friends of Humanity. Disgusted, he tells Mystique the boy might have turned out differently with a loving mother. Seeking revenge on Graydon, in 1994's X-Men Unlimited 4 by Scott Lobdell, Mystique attempts to frame him for murder. She's pursued by Rogue and Nightcrawler, and with the help of Forge, the two X-Men manage to confront Mystique. Nightcrawler poses as Graydon using an image inducer, and Mystique reveals that he and Graydon are half-brothers. She had been married to the German Count Wagner, and when her son was born blue with demonic features, the townspeople tried to kill them. Mystique escaped by shapeshifting into an anonymous member of the mob and throwing her baby down a waterfall to his apparent death. She swears she has never regretted it, though she was ultimately pleased to see the boy had survived, found by Margalise Sardish and raised to become the hero Nightcrawler. At the end of the story, Rogue must choose to save either Mystique or Nightcrawler from falling to their death. Mystique, wanting to spare Rogue the agony of that choice, chooses to fall and is apparently killed. But Valerie Cooper and Forge don't believe Mystique is really dead, and they manage to track her to Israel, where she's seeking revenge on the insane mutant legion for killing Destiny. Her plans are foiled, and she's forced into service by X-Factor, becoming a reluctant member of the team to avoid jail time. Though she's irritated, Mystique can't deny her sexual attraction to Forge, or Destiny's prophecy that their fates are intertwined. Forge admits to Mystique that he believes the adversary has returned, and he proves correct. The cosmic entity possesses Mystique and tries to use her to kill X-Factor, but is ultimately defeated. Mystique is furious when her former lover Sabretooth is also forced into service with X-Factor. In the 1996 miniseries Sabretooth and Mystique by Jorge Gonzalez, the two villains turned anti-heroes hunt down the Hydra agent Catalyst. It's revealed that years earlier, Mystique had again worked with Sabretooth, this time in the guise of Mossad operative Amechai Benvenisti. Mystique, Sabretooth, and Destiny had been captured and tortured by Catalyst. Mystique and Sabretooth kill him in the present, with Mystique shapeshifting into Destiny to ensure, as Irene had predicted back when they were being tortured, that her face is the last thing Catalyst ever sees. Mystique is outraged when the young mutant Trevor Chase, Destiny's grandson, is attacked by the Friends of Humanity. To avenge this insult, she vows to kill her son Graydon, now a populist candidate for president. Escaping from X-Factor for a time, she successfully assassinates Graydon Creed, 
whereupon the government demands she be handed over. X-Factor instead decides to sever ties with the government, keeping Mystique and Sabretooth in their own custody. Mystique and Forge finally admit their romantic feelings for one another and briefly embark on a real relationship, until Sabretooth, actually a sleeper agent planted with an X-Factor by the government, nearly massacres the team. Valerie Cooper realizes the deception and attempts to warn X-Factor, but it's too late, and Mystique, blaming Val, slips away. She assumes an old identity, Mallory Brickman, the wife of anti-mutant Senator Miles Brickman, who had been Graydon Creed's running mate. Federal agents discover Mallory, who had been supposedly kidnapped some time ago, based on an anonymous tip. In an attempt to get revenge on Sabretooth, she tells them he had held her captive. As Mallory Brickman, Mystique learns about trials of a procedure that can cure mutants. She's horrified to discover Rogue is the willing test subject, and castigates her daughter for selfishly aiding in an experiment that could lead to the genocide of mutant kind. Though the procedure is proven to work with no side effects, Rogue realizes Mystique is right and destroys the research. Leaving behind her life as Mallory Brickman, Mystique briefly leads a new brotherhood of evil mutants, then decides to lead a more fun life as the supermodel Ronnie Lake. She gets attacked by ninjas because she was framed by Skrulls. Don't worry about it. In the 1999 Chris Claremont miniseries X-Men True Friends, a time-traveling Kitty Pride, arriving in 1936, plans to kill Hitler, but is convinced by Mystique and Destiny, who are working with Wolverine at that time, that this would irrevocably alter the timeline. Don't worry about it. When the being called the High Evolutionary temporarily depowers all mutants, Mystique is captured on one of her espionage schemes and taken into custody. She begs Rogue to help her escape, but Rogue is forced to leave her behind to help the X-Men stop the Evolutionary's satellite. Furious that Rogue has again chosen the X-Men over her real family, Mystique escapes from prison once her powers are restored. At one point, a living spaceship briefly turns her into a scaly person like the Mystique from the Fox X-Men movies and sends her traveling through time. Don't worry about it. After another failed attempt to assassinate Senator Kelly, now a popular Republican candidate for president, Mystique switches goals. Guided by oracular diaries Destiny had left behind before her death, she begins impersonating the X-Men's ally Dr. Moira McTaggart, stealing the doctor's research on the mutant-killing legacy virus. Mystique manages to modify the virus into a version that kills only regular humans, and plans to set it loose on the world from Moira's laboratory on Muir Island. When Rogue tries to convince her she's lost her mind, Mystique stabs her daughter in the abdomen, nearly killing her, and is in turn stabbed by Rogue. The real Moira McTaggart manages to use Mystique's research to get much closer to an actual cure for the legacy virus, and passes this information telepathically to Xavier before dying from injuries sustained in the Brotherhood's attack. Mystique reveals that Destiny's diaries predict a dire future for mutant kind, and that her attempt to eradicate Homo sapiens was her way of trying to avert that future for Homo superior. She gives the diaries to the X-Men, leading to the Chris Claremont book Extreme X-Men, where a splinter team, including Rogue, travels the world to investigate the prophecies in the diaries. In Joe Casey's 2002 run on Uncanny X-Men, Mystique escapes from prison and is recruited by the former X-Man Banshee to join his X-Corps, an authoritarian group policing evil mutants. She ends up slitting Banshee's throat and getting sucked into a void by a mutant called Abyss. Don't worry about it. He spits her back out, eventually, just in time, for the Draco. I'm not covering the Draco again. Please revisit episode 2 on Kurt Wagner. In a 2003 solo Mystique ongoing series by Brian K. Vaughn, Mystique is rescued from Death Row by Xavier, who blackmails her into becoming a secret agent for him. She's teamed up with Forge and a handler codenamed Shortpack, and has a bunch of fun spy adventures you don't really need to know about. The important thing is that she comes to blows with Rogue once again, and Rogue proclaims that Mystique is no longer her mother. 
Upset that her relationship with Rogue has deteriorated, Mystique decides to devote herself to improving Rogue's life. She doesn't approve of Rogue's boyfriend, Gambit, so in 2005's X-Men 171, she assumes a new identity as the teenage mutant Fox and infiltrates Xavier's school, attempting to seduce Gambit and end his relationship with Rogue. Mystique has met a mutant called Pulse with the ability to temporarily disable other mutants' powers and thinks he'd be a better match for her daughter. Gambit, however, refuses to be tempted, and Mystique, impressed, reveals her true identity. She then petitions for formal membership in the X-Men, and after the decimation depowers most of the mutant population, she's selected by Rogue to be part of her squad. Mystique's thrilled by this gesture from her daughter, but Rogue coldly assures her it's only because she knows Mystique will eventually betray them, and she wants to be there to put her mother down when it happens. Mystique serves with the team regardless in Mike Carey's run on the X-Men, eventually developing a romantic connection with Iceman, LOL, and staying by Rogue's side after Rogue contracts the deadly disease Strain 88, which makes her touch completely lethal, and then absorbs the psyches of 8 million aliens from a creature called the Hecatomb. Don't worry about it. Then Mystique does, in fact, betray the team. It turns out she's been allied with Mr. Sinister the whole time, trying to mislead the X-Men and recover Destiny's diaries. In the battle, the diaries are destroyed, and Mystique brings Rogue with her and Sinister as they prepare for the event called Messiah Complex, in which various forces scramble to seize custody of the mutant Messiah, the seemingly impossible first mutant child to be born after the decimation. When Mystique gets possession of the baby, a girl named Hope, she tricks Sinister into an apparent death from Rogue's deadly touch, and then uses the baby to cure Rogue of her afflictions. Mystique reveals to Gambit that all of these events were predicted by destiny, and all of Mystique's actions over the last several months were done to save Rogue's life. Though Baby Hope is unharmed, Rogue is horrified that Mystique would sacrifice an innocent child, and attempts to kill her mother with a touch, only to realize she has been fully cured of Strain 88 in addition to the psychic noise of the Hecatomb. Mystique escapes, as always, and Cyclops sends Wolverine after her in his solo title in the 2008 storyline Get Mystique by Jason Aaron. They end up dueling in the desert, and Wolverine leaves her for dead. In the 2009 franchise-wide event Utopia, Mystique joins forces with Norman Osborn as one of his dark X-Men, posing first as Charles Xavier and then, purely to annoy Wolverine, as the deceased Jean Grey. Teaming up with Wolverine's estranged son, Dakin, in the 2011 story Wolverine Goes to Hell, Mystique helps an organization called the Red Right Hand send Wolverine's soul to hell. She turns on the group when she realizes the full extent of their evil plans and works to restore Wolverine out of respect for his long friendship with her son Nightcrawler. Wolverine, who's had about enough of her, stabs her to death with his claws. Her corpse is auctioned off on the black market and purchased by agents of the Japanese crime syndicate The Hand, who eventually resurrect her, now with the ability to mask her scent when she shapeshifts. This is running really long, if you haven't noticed, so we're going to start doing some bullet points. Mystique buys the island of Madripoor and does a bunch of crimes. Mystique captures and impersonates the X-Man Dazzler, who had become an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Mystique sells mutant growth hormone she harvests from captured mutants, and Magneto is pretty skeeved about it. Wolverine dies, and Mystique goes on some wacky adventures with his kids. In the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by Jonathan Hickman, Mystique is enlisted by Xavier and Magneto to help them establish a sovereign mutant nation on the living island Krakoa. After embarking on a suicide mission, she's resurrected by the power of the Five, revealing the new miracle of resurrection to the citizens of Krakoa. She is then appointed as one of the twelve members of the Quiet Council, Krakoa's leadership body, as part of the Winter section of the Council, representing the interests of former villains. In 2020's X-Men number 5, The Oracle, by Jonathan Hickman, Mystique continues her clandestine work for Magneto and Xavier. 
In exchange for her services, they have promised to resurrect Destiny, but so far they have refused to do so, saying Mystique must do yet more for Krakoa. Mystique does not know that their silent partner Moira McTaggart, secretly the reincarnating mutant known as Moira X, has forbidden the resurrection of Precogs, who she feels will foil her carefully laid plans. Frustrated, Mystique demands the men return Destiny to her, calling Irene her wife for the first time on panel. Xavier and Magneto demand more patience. A flashback reveals that many years ago, Destiny warned Mystique about Krakoa, told her someday there would be a mutant paradise on an island, that someday men would have the power to bring Destiny back from the dead, and that they would refuse, that they would lie, that someday Mystique would have to burn the whole thing down. X-Men! X-Men! And we're back. I wanted to mention, because no one will be able to see you, that you're wearing an Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters oh sweater, which yeah. I thought was cute. I've always wanted one. Um, and then I remember that I, I, I think I got it at New York Comic Con. Mm-hmm. And I almost threw it out recently. And my boyfriend decided to keep it. And I'm so glad he did. Why would you ever throw that out? It was making me... I, it wasn't fitting right. It's like okay. a child's mm. large, you know? Okay, I got that. All right. I've never had that problem because I, be, I used to be a very adult extra large. So okay, okay. All of my clothes are too big. So right, right, I, right. I, am, I am redoing because I've, I've lost a lot of weight. So I am also sort of redoing my wardrobe. I actually just bought a cool t-shirt. It's Betsy and Kanon as Captain Britain and Psylocke crossing their swords. Oh, cool. It's like, it's like a fan art t-shirt. It's really well, cool. I, I will mean, post are... that on the Twitter when I get it. Please do. Those are super fun. Um, but I've always been like, I always like gear that looks, that's like That looks regular. Yeah. No, I would only wear that to like a fan type thing. Sure. But I have, I have worn the Magneto was right t-shirt oh from Morrison's New X-Men. Yeah. I, I found one online that was red and had the right and image bright? of Magneto from because the, it's always wrong. it's hard to it's always the official ones are always this clip art Magneto and it's not send the drawing from yeah I'll find it again if and you send it to you I wear that I, always, I wear that shirt all the time I used to design when I was in merch and I mean yeah you're an artist art. we used to work one of our clients was her universe which makes like Mm-hmm. And clothes or whatever. It's Ashley Eckstein voices um, Ahsoka. Um, yeah. And I tried so hard to get them to let me officially do like an officially licensed Magneto was right because Marvel was one of their properties. Yeah. And it, it didn't work because I was always like, all these people are making them online for free. And yeah. it's the wrong I, I got image. it off like I got it off like Etsy or something with the right. I found it in red with the right uh, image. I know. And I was me, like, thank you. That's all I wanted. Right. But just like picture me at like a boardroom table trying to convince. I'm sure. You're just like, heard. you don't understand. It's like really important <laughs> to really the story. So, yeah. Okay, so Quentin Choir is. And they're like, yeah. And they're he like, sucks. But the shirt is great. Right. <laughs> their you eyes know. are just like glossing. Like over. what? You're yeah. like, he's an Omega level mutant and he's kind of an incel and it's <laughs> gross. He but he has gay, this t-shirt. But he's not. Apparently. Well, he is now. He is. So, now. Okay. So, well. I mean, this is really well. He's bisexual, topic, but... but like he is queer oh. now, which weirds me out because in the Morrison run, he's this disgusting, very heterosexual incel. Right. And as someone has pointed out to me on Twitter, as in the case of Bobby, often closeted men are misogynist when they're in the closet as an overcompensation measure. But a lot of those guys keep that trucking after they come out of. The yeah, it's true. <laughs> they do. But the way that he reads to me in the Morrison issues is very much like he is someone who would be on the incels Reddit if it were 10 years later. Me too. And I, now he's this sort of like swishy. pansexual, swishy yeah. like character. And I fell off for a while after the decimation and then went back and read him. When I, by the time I came back, 
he was this new character. And I understand that characters grow and change. Like, but that one's a that's a hard one for me to swallow. Yeah. I like I don't want to claim Quentin Quire. It bothers me. <laughs> Same. To come back around, I would love to talk about your favorite Mystique storylines because I have mine, but I would say mine are mostly, as with many of these episodes, in the classic run, in the Claremont material. Although I did enjoy, I don't know if I would enjoy it if I went back and read it now, but when it was coming out, I did enjoy the 90s X Factor book where she and Forge have this very weird, tense sexual chemistry that was fun. But for the most part, my favorite Mystique stuff is usually in the 70s and 80s. And I actually really like what they're doing with her now, obviously. But I know that you are a fan of the Mike Carey period, of other stuff from the 21st century with Mystique. And I would love to talk about that stuff. Because I fell off after the decimation for a little bit, I've read it now, that material, but I wasn't reading it when it was coming out. So I feel like I often gloss over that period on the podcast unintentionally. Mm -hmm. So when a guest is like, no, I love Messiah Complex, I'm like, please talk about Messiah Complex. You know what I mean? Because it doesn't always occur to me to bring it up. Love Messiah Complex. Um, No, I've always, I mean, like I said earlier, X-Men is sort of the prism through which like I like everything. Yeah, like, same. I like the OC because I like X-Men. I like mm-hmm. Buffy because I like X-Men. I think the Scooby gang is sort of like a cleaner reference point for like what influences weed in and all these people. Mm-hmm. Um, Scooby-Doo, that is. The bu- but, yeah, the Buffy Scooby gang. Yeah, and yeah. that's sort of a go-to for like in, in the second season, like when everyone sort of congeals together on any right. show. But like I think so many people actually map a lot of their soaps and a lot of their character progress. I think a lot of it does feel like a lot of X-Men. I feel like a lot of it is X-Men inspired, whether or not they, they even know it or, or even realize it. But Well, and Whedon certainly has talked about that at length. I mean, Kitty Pride is probably the core influence on both Buffy and Willow. Oh, she, for sure. She sort of splits her into two characters. And then, as I pointed out in the Nightcrawler episode, one of the big reveals in season two of Buffy is Giles' girlfriend is secretly a Romany spy, which is, of <laughs> yes. course, exactly what happens to Nightcrawler in 1980. Right. Jenny, Jenny, Count, Jenny, Count, Jenny Calendar Jenny is actually Yana Calderesh, much yes. like Amanda Sefton is actually Jemaine Sardish. I mean, you know, Whedon is who he is, but Jenny Calendar is. Jenny Calendar rules. Jenny Calendar is a tech, well, a, a queen. techno, a techno witch, techno pagan, techno pagan. Good lord. My favorite thing about Jenny Calendar is actually that the actress Ruby Lamort was actually younger than Nicholas Brennan and Charisma Carpenter. Shut up. By like a month, they were all twenty-six. when they were cast on that show. (laughs) (laughs) If you are a uh, Buffy and Angel fan listening right now, I was the guest just recently on Angel on Top, which is the Angel spinoff podcast uh, from the Buffering the Vampire Slayer podcast. So if you are a fan, check that out. I had a lot of fun with my friend Latoya Ferguson. Oh, I love Latoya. Who is the new host of Angel on Top. I have very mixed feelings about Joss Whedon and his legacy generally, but those shows were enormously formative for me, and Angel is probably still my comfort show. Yeah. But I guess what I mean by that is that I've, you know, the the era you're talking about, which kind of culminates to me in Messiah Complex, Yeah, um, is very, you know, the third season of Mystique's you know, career. Yeah, X-Men. that's a really good point. That's and a way. I, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, and I love the third. You know, almost like I've been lampooned by my by friends and family. I, I always love like the college years. You know, right? I, love, I like when they're older and like now they're friends with the gang. You know, that's always like my sweet spot. Like I like when 
Julie Cooper is like <laughs> teaming up with Ryan. Like that's yeah. my that's my jam. Yeah, it's funny on Buffy and Angel. I would say qualitatively that season two of both of those shows is the best one, but mm-hmm. season three in both cases is the one I like the most. Exactly. It, exactly. Because it does Fun. feel like the vibe is there. Everyone's just vibing. Everyone's vibing on Buffy. It's when like Faith and Wesley come in. Oh yeah. And it's just like, uh uh-oh, now it's complicated. Like a little too many characters. (laughs) That's my sweet spot. All that to say. I agree. I think that with Mystique, Mystique is an interesting character because she has kind of, we talked earlier about the Batman rogues gallery and how great they are. And Mystique has the same thing that Catwoman and Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy have, which is that she's so fun and so visually iconic and so popular that she over time almost by necessity got turned into an anti-hero character who could team up with the X-Men because fans liked her too much for her to just be a bad guy. And what's helpful is that from her first appearances, because of her relationship with Rogue, she always has a sympathetic aspect that the reader can identify with. And once Destiny is killed on Mira Island, it is a tragedy that makes her relatable to the reader, and it frees her up to then have romantic interactions with other characters. Which is... Funny because yeah, because that that is that is the exact storyline that I think is the break. That's probably the, the dividing line. Two. Absolutely, yeah. And then like the rest of it is season two is Freedom Force exactly, which which I love. Okay, I love that Mystique is savvy enough to in the story understand that she is that character. Like she goes to Valerie Cooper and says, "The bitch Val Cooper, <laughs> the head bitch in charge, Val Cooper." My favorite thing about Val Cooper, apart from just Val Cooper's whole vibe. That name is insane. Valerie Cooper is such a good name. But this is a fun one that a lot of people don't know is particularly in the stuff in the early 90s. She came first, but there are several references made in the 90s to the idea that her brother is an FBI agent who explores weird paranormal cases. The implication being that her brother is Dale Cooper from Twin Peaks. Oh, my God. It's a coincidence that she's this government agent whose name is Cooper. But once Twin Peaks showed up, they worked that casually into the X-Men. She never says his name, but she's just like, my brother's investigating this weird case out west. And I told him, you don't know the half of it. It's fun. Mystique goes to Valerie Cooper and she's like, I understand that I am an infamous terrorist who attempted to kill a sitting senator not long ago. However, mutants are hot. Mutants are a hot topic. Everybody wants to to figure out what's up with mutants right now. Wouldn't you like it if a mutant who doesn't give a shit about anyone but herself came and worked for you and was a superhero that you could order around? Because I am willing to do that for you 100% if you give me a full pardon. Yeah. And in doing so, she also finds an opportunity to do um, Ronald Reagan drag. Yes, which is always fun (laughs) to do if you're a shapeshifter, I guess, in the 80s. But it is an interesting moment because there are a lot of groups that come later in comics that are like that. Suicide Squad, Thunderbolts, the Hellion Squad now in Dawn of X. Does it beat them to it? It does beat them to it. I always feel like Suicide Squad or one of those things is going to be one of those stories that there's some crazy version of it from like the 50s that I've never heard of. Right, no. Suicide Squad is created by John Estrander in... Oh my God, actually, you know what? You're right. (laughs) 
Hell yeah. I just Googled it because I was like, I'm not always as good at my DC. And I was like, someone no, I don't know shit about DC. Exclusively ventriloquist facts. Jeez. Wow. Yeah. So there is an original Suicide Squad. It's like Toaster Man or some shit. No, it's not like... It's not like the later version is. So that's the thing. Are there any A-listers in it? No, it wasn't even villains is what I'm saying. They're just expendable, essentially. You know what I mean? It's not the super villains Like some kind of thing. group of expendables. Correct. The Suicide Squad, though, that we all think of is created by John Estrander in 1987. Sure. And that's the one where it's a bunch of supervillains who Amanda Waller is willing to pardon if they will do suicide missions for her for the government. Is Waller not in, in this? Waller's not in the original, no. The Brotherhood becomes Freedom Force in 1985. So Ooh. it's actually two years before Estrander's Suicide Squad. Okay. And I think that much like the way that Claremont's X-Men precipitated the new Teen Titans by Wolfman and Perez and other DC books that looked at what Claremont was doing and were like, wow, that's interesting. I think that Freedom Force was an influence perhaps on A Strander's Suicide Squad, which, by the way, is an incredible book. A Strander's Suicide Squad, the original run, is brilliant. Amanda Waller is one of the best DC characters, period. And I mean, she kills in that. Team, team CCH Pounder, though. I am also a CCH Pounder okay. head. Yes, it's true. Although she couldn't play it in real life, although neither could Viola Davis. The real problem I have is the live action Wallers are never fat. No. Uh, the closest you would get is... Um, what's her name? I can't believe I'm blanking on her name. Pam Greer Pam on Greer. Smallville, but Smallville. she's just like... She just she's has like, big boobs. She's just stacked. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's just like a brick shit house. Like she's yeah. not a fat person. And I always thought that the thing about Waller that was interesting is she doesn't look like a woman in a comic book. No. Usually looks. No. But it's not played as though she's gross. Or like it's no, not a, it's not like mocking fat people. It's that she's physically intimidating and she can kick the shit out of you. You know, you can tell she fucks too. And like, oh not, yeah, like yeah, it's no, not, she's not so Amanda chaste. Is hot. Yeah, I love her. I love Amanda Waller when she's in ba- Batman's bathroom or whatever in Justice League. Yeah, she's in so Unlimited. oh, it's so good. flawless. Honestly, Amanda Waller's the best. She is Amanda Waller and Renee Montoya are my favorite DC characters. For anyone who's been paying attention, sure, I love Amanda Waller. Amanda Waller notably codenamed the White Queen when she's in Checkmate. So yeah. I just is that, always love a white queen. Is that queen. only on Smallville or is that in DC No, that's proper? in the comics. That okay. was Greg Rucka did a Checkmate series that was great, okay. actually, that I think is worth reading and was sort of ended too soon. Anyway, so Freedom Force is definitely Mystique season two because, it, and it is metatextual because it's Mystique understanding that she's popular enough with the fans that she should pivot to superheroism. Yeah. And it annoys the shit out of the X-Men because suddenly Freedom Force have government clearance and are heroes who are tasked with apprehending them because the X-Men are outlaws. It's just a really fun, clever twist. And she's absolutely right, because after that period, Mystique is never really a pure villain again. Right. She has moments where she betrays people because she's into betraying people. But she's really just out for herself well, and Destiny holds, and Rogue. She, she holds very specific grudges. You know, but I I do love that it always, she'll kill your cat and then be like, well, this was for Rogue. 
you know. Yeah, like, I'm sorry. You know, I had, to, well, she'll never say I'm sorry, but she's really like, had to. I really had to do that. You understand, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you get it, Rogue. It was easier when you Desi was around Rogue. because she would be like, Desi told me I had to do that. Right. So, you know. Well, she was saying that long after Destiny kicked the can. I mean, it's that's, true. That's what, she still does. Oh, that's she, what she's, she's doing like, right now. Truly. I wish I had a, a, a precog de- departed partner to be like, I'm sorry, Des- Destiny told me I had to take your cab. Yeah, actually, one of my favorite Mystique stories is that annual that Peter David wrote where she goes to scatter Destiny's ashes on the cruise ship. So good. It's so good. And if you haven't read it... Gee, is that where she talks to just like some other old lady and is like, this was healing? <laughs> That's a different one where oh, she okay. <laughs> talks to this old lady and is just like, ugh. And she's God. like nice to her. And it's yeah, like her she's own... it's the only person you ever see Mystique be nice to because she looks like Irene. And then yeah. Mystique thinks like, this isn't Irene. Irene's dead. Don't yeah. be weird. But yeah. afterwards, she's just like, oh, that felt good. Right. But now I'm sad. Right. The annual I'm talking about is the one where she goes just on this cruise because Destiny left her a note like, go on this cruise on this date after I'm dead. Because Destiny knew she was going to die, but didn't tell Mystique. Provided by Alan Chuck Travel. Um, so she goes on this cruise to scatter Destiny's ashes at Destiny's request. And at the precise moment Destiny has told her to do it, she empties the ashes into the sea and a gust of wind blows forward and the ashes blow into her face and she starts sneezing. <laughs> and it's a joke. Yeah. It's a joke that Destiny left for her. And she's just like, you fucking old bitch. Like, you know, and it's just a very funny, very... And she just starts to laugh. Well, it's a good angle. It's a funny new angle to the character, too, to be like, that classic wit destiny. Right, yeah, no, that that great (laughs) jokester, Irene Adler. Like, that's not really ever... Punked me again. Punked me again, destiny. (laughs) But I do like the way Hickman is writing her, destiny, in the flashbacks, because he is sort of writing her as witty i mean the way she talks to moira first of all she's really scary which is not something they've done with destiny before (laughs) and i love it because i am a destiny stan so i love a moment where destiny gets to be real fucking scary but also the way she was written in the more recent issue the one with the i want my wife back line yeah destiny's just like so someday there's going to be a mutant paradise on an island. And if they tell you that they can't bring me back to life, because this is after I'm dead, by the way. And Raven's like, after you're what? And she's like, don't worry about it. She's a lot like me doing the Cerebro character file. She does a lot of <laughs> don't worry about it. Yada, yada, yada. Yeah, don't worry about it. But she goes, after I'm dead, there's going to be a paradise where they can bring me back to life. And when they don't, you're going to have to burn the whole thing down. I love that. <laughs> and, and, and Raven's just like, um... I remember where I was when I read, you know, not that it was that long yeah. ago, but like, it but was, it was, but it's a moment. I, it and was I, yeah. pre this and I remember I was sitting at, right, Peter's. exactly. And, and Raven's just like, do you want to go into more detail on that? And Destiny's just like, no, just enjoy the sunset right now. We're yeah. fine. I'm done talking right now. Burn it all down. Just so in the good. future. You are though going to have to, they are lying to you and you're going to have to really wreak some havoc. Well, and you know, and I'll ask you this question and then we can talk about some of her storylines, but where are you on? Because I'm team burn it down. <laughs> as much as I love what's happening, I don't trust it at all. And I don't trust Xavier. I don't ever trust Charles Xavier. So that's no. like my baseline operating mode. I do trust Moira in the sense that I think we understand what Moira is trying to do. Right. And I believe that that is what she's trying to do. I really buy into Krakoa as a concept. I've talked about this before i think that it's a very provocative zionism metaphor certainly that is interesting and speaking as a jewish person who is not 
a Zionist. Right. You know, I try not to get super political on the podcast, but <laughs> I am an anti-occupation kind of person. <laughs> it is a provocative metaphor about Zionism that asks, how could you make a minority nation state that is not oppressing other people? Mm-hmm. And I think that's really cool. On the other hand, there are things about it we're definitely supposed to question. I mean, their justice system where Sabretooth is just put in the pit for eternity mm-hmm. is a little sus. Yeah. The decision recently made in Hellions about Madeline Pryor that she doesn't count as a real person because she's a clone. Right. Particularly when it looks like they're not applying that standard to Gabby the Honey Badger Right. There's abuses of power that you can already see happening. We're supposed to question a lot of the specifics of Krakoa, I think. I also think that the directive to make more mutants, even if Kurt is joking, is a little ominous. Rogue talks about how that makes her uncomfortable in Mm -hmm. Excalibur because she doesn't want to have a child Mm -hmm. and feels pressured to now. I wonder if she would even be able to. I think she wonders that also, and that's part of why she doesn't want to try or think about it too much. It'd be kind of a good storyline. Except that they did that with Siren and Madrox in X-Factor. So I don't oh, really? really... Yeah, in Peter David's X-Factor, Siren gets pregnant, and it turns out that one of the duplicates impregnated her, not Madrox Prime, and so when Madrox touches the baby, he absorbs it. Oh, fuck. It's really awful. Uh, it, it really fucks her up. That's good. I love finding any new angles to, like... Of the, new, of the horrors that could be presented by their powers. I like when the X-Men do body horror stuff. I just found that to be particularly cruel to Siren. Sure. Speaking of babies, Messiah Complex culminates yes. in a baby. Talk about Messiah Complex. Sure. So I remember just being fucking stoked that she was very much he- heavily telegraphed as the star of a huge arc that was happening, or, like, or at least the kind of wheels that are turning an entire Mm -hmm. arc and when messiah complex was kind of rolling around and it comes off the heels of one of my favorite storylines of hers which is her trying to hang out in the mansion and get close to the x-men and and it, it does seem like she might be turning a new leaf and that things have sort of broken down in her brain a little bit and it all might just be catching up to her. She acts like she's gone full Catwoman. Like, I'm a superhero now. Absolutely. I've fully done a, a face turn. Yes. And, you know, like I said, it's it's fun season three shit. And it also just has some, like, fucking bonkers plot lines. I mean, I love, I love a doing literally anything for my daughter thing. I, you know, Alias is my... Yeah, she's very alias. Rogue and Mystique are very alias. It's the exact. I mean, it's why I love Alias, and Mm -hmm. I've I've a voice canon for like everyone in my in when I read, and Lena Olin has always been my Mystique. But that's good. Honestly, Lena Olin would be a very good Mystique if they were willing to cast a a little older. I mean, now she's probably a little too old, but like I like a reedy, but very like a fit reedy, like older kind of. I would like them to cast Mystique a little older though. If when they cast her for the MCU, like I would love like a Carla Gugino Mystique, you know what I mean? Oh, totally. Exactly. That kind of vibe. Even like, I mean, this is not her necessarily, but even like a Carrie Russell. Carrie Russell, American style. Yeah. would kill that. That's what I mean. Yeah. It's also, also a little why I love the Americans. Like I always have the lens Mm -hmm. of Mystique when I like a woman on a, in a, a dangerous woman in a show. But, um, she, in leading up to Messiah Complex, one of my favorite fucking things she does is when she's really committed to the fact that she thinks that Rogue needs a partner that she can actually be with 
physically, mm-hmm. which does seem to be a specific and obviously horny mission because that's also part of the content and context right. of X-Men that like that's they're all just so fucking horny. It's also true like Rogue's whole crisis for about 20 years is that she's so horny. Yeah. And can't fuck. And I love the inverse of a mom uh, like an overpowering mom in one of these soaps being like I got to get her to fuck. I got to help my gotta, daughter fuck. I got to yeah. help her fuck. Like Julie Cooper would never. And <laughs> but it's like it's also like it's just like rising moon versus the sun of like a classic soap mom like mm-hmm. she's doing all the same thing but her her, her goals are insane so she, her, one of her goals to get rogue to fuck is to be is to try and set her up with pulse who is a mutant who can like kind of take your powers away momentarily mm-hmm. which would be perfect for her right and to get her to separate from her otp gambit who they who's not fucking her because they can't she tries to she pretends to be a different mutant she mystique transforms into like a young hot slut to like try and that's when she's fox yeah fox and she tries to convince gambit to fuck her in the shower yeah she tries to seduce rogue's boyfriend in a new identity she's assumed in order to break up rogue and gambit so that rogue will be happy with the man that she now wants to set rogue up with it's the most yenta ing (laughs) mother plot of all time it's a it would be a plot line on the nanny like full full stop it's truly bananas and it is very funny it's very funny and it ends the button it ends in is so insane because gambit to his credit says no he loves rogue otp however (sighs) mystique i'll take it i'll take it i like them now it's fine yeah i don't like them married but that's a whole other thing mystique i like them married i haven't liked them before and now i'm into it it's weird that's cute but mystique sees Gambit in a new light because of that. And she, she thinks he might be a good match for her because he was so strong against her, her wiles. But then they make it appear as though, and kind of leave it up to you for you to decide. She presents as rogue in that scenario to be like, well, now would you like to fuck rogue as a reward for not fucking Fox, even though I'm not rogue, I'm rogue's mom. And that's fucking bananas. I mean, Mystique's truly insane i mean yeah. that is part of the thing about the character that right. is fun but it almost like makes... and it's it's a specific like she's a sociopath she's a sociopath in a way that is in my opinion very well written because i think that a lot of the time in comics when someone is a sociopath it doesn't feel researched and it doesn't feel like they're just crazy right. but i do think mystique is written in such a way that you get it and if you know anything about like sociopathy or antisocial personality sort of whatever you're gonna say they do it really well. Like she loves Rogue and loves Destiny, but in part because they are part of her. Right. You know, like it's very much. And so the literal scene that's like, I am going to turn into Rogue and offer to have sex with Rogue's boyfriend as a reward for him. It's the ultimate in that like sociopathic mother who sees the daughter as an extension of herself thing literalized through the mutant power. Unlike some characters where it's like, this is just an agent of chaos. I find that it engenders a sympathy to some extent and that I understand where she's coming from. And vis-a-vis like Xavier, I always find, I always found her, I don't think people put her in the same pantheon, but I always have found her. You know, it's always like Xavier or Eric, like which which path mm-hmm. do you follow? And like Apocalypse is like so above all that. But like, are you Xavier or are you Eric? I've always really responded to her because it is through the lens of self-preservation. But her activism and her mutant liberation activism 
always sort of runs to the left of both of them and to the center of herself. (laughs) She's, yeah, she's a radical in a way that's interesting. Yeah. Particularly the Freedom Force versus the Mutant Liberation Front moment that happens briefly in the early, early 90s, late 80s is interesting. Right. Because that's one where like the Mutant Liberation Front is bullshit. Strife doesn't give a shit about anyone. And similarly, Freedom Force is bullshit. Like Mystique doesn't care about the government. So she's assumed a right-wing role and he's assumed a left-wing role and neither of them actually care about what they're doing. And it's just a really funny... Which is why I was initially resistant to it because I remember finding that out and be, and I, you know, because I was going backwards when I first introduced the character. Right. And I remember getting to Freedom Force and being like, I don't, I don't think she would do this. But then like getting involved in it was like, it was all such theater and she was like, just kind of coasting above all of it. She's acting. Exactly, yeah, and none of it, she just didn't take any of it particularly seriously and didn't think anything any of it actually had any effect and that she knew her actual work was going to be what was effective like the assassinations yeah. and the, the the machinations and Destiny she just Girls. wanted val to pardon her so she could do more evil shit yeah. is the thing so yeah. it, it is since it's part of a long game scheme i enjoy it i agree that mystique is not typically she's usually seen as sort of a successor to magneto but i do think that her philosophy is slightly different exactly you know the triangle i've said this a couple times i think that it's emma who is really established as the third ideological point on that triangle i think so but mystique's thing is interesting because she seems to genuinely believe in like mutant liberation but mostly out of selfishness exactly I'm a mutant, so therefore mutants should be free and have power. Right. Whereas with Magneto, 60s Magneto is like that. But Claremont's Magneto is not. Claremont's Magneto is, frankly, a hardline Zionist. I mean, that's his whole thing. That's what 80s X-Men on some level is about. Mm -hmm. Which is, again, why Krakoa is really interesting. But Mystique is doing it entirely for selfish reasons. Emma is self-absorbed and exploits the system, but does it mostly because she's obsessed with creating a better life for like mutant children. That's like her thing. Mystique outside of Rogue could not give a shit. Mystique doesn't even give a shit about Nightcrawler. I mean, that's actually something I really, I find very realistic about the character. I find she has a very clear focus on the, on this daughter that she chose. Right. And the conflict. And it's also a product the daughter is a product, you know, she didn't have it biologically, but she obviously cares so much more about the family unit with her and Destiny. Well, that's the thing is her child with Destiny is the only child she cares about. And exactly. I think that that's really key. She doesn't yeah. care about her child with Count Wagner. She cares enough about him. She obviously, it's like one of the few places where she finds, she feels guilt. And I feel like it's her reservoir of guilt here and there that she'll tap into and get that out of her system. But of course she, I mean, again, this is the Lubdell issue that has a lot of continuity, messy things. But in the issue where she reveals what happened, she says, and I've never regretted it. Right. Once. Oh no. And that I believe. I don't think she regrets doing it because she had to do it to save her own life. And so that's all she cares about at the end of the day. But it is clear that she cared enough to keep tabs on him because she knows the first time they meet, that he is her son and was raised by Margali Sardish. And she... Because she tells him, go ask your mother Margali about me if you're curious, you know? And she, she like, falls off a cliff or something to to, to not... Sit, to let him and Rogue survive. She, like, doesn't choose between them. She, like, lets him right. survive. There's, like, one moment where she's like, 
and there's know. also a moment in the 80s that's interesting where she's training in arcades murder world <laughs> which is like sure <laughs> Specifically, she does it because he has all these robot duplicates of the X-Men that she can fight. But she can't And she kill kills them all, including the rogue robot. But she right. cannot bring herself to kill Nightcrawler. Yeah. And I think it's because he looks like her. And she oh, can see, I gave birth to you. Like, absolutely. she can't. That is in there. Like, she can't quite bring herself to do that even though it's a robot she's like that's too weird yeah no and i I think it's because she remembers i did try to kill you when you were a baby absolutely no and i think like to your sort of vampire point earlier like she definitely has that sort of switch with him and she just switches it she doesn't she just turns off her yeah concept of nightcrawler's existence most of the time yeah she just can't think about it because it's too weird for her to think about it which i just find very realistic for that type of character like so yeah so many especially like strange determinately doggedly successful like global people how many times do you hear the story that like they never fucking spoke to their kid like the the entire time like even like mr rogers who's like a nice person or whatever it's like his kids were like he was a weird guy like you know yeah i find something fascinating about her like uh, committing all of this energy to rogue but being you know, whatever about Nightcrawler. She doesn't have time for it. Well, and hating great. And then hating great. I mean, (laughs) like, I like that, particularly, I really like the reason she kills Graydon is not because he's a racist who's going to become president and hates mutants. Mm -hmm. It's because his guys beat up Trevor Chase. Yeah. Uh, To go back to Trevor Chase, who's Destiny's grandson and a mutant. Canonically gay to me. Yeah, I mean, clearly. (laughs) whatever queer genes exist destiny passed those down real yeah. real efficiently to trevor mm-hmm. hers was the only mask in the family if you exactly <laughs> right mm-hmm. so trevor chase though the friends of humanity beat the shit out of him yeah. and Graydon is the leader of the friends of humanity and so what really pushes her over the edge and she's like well now he has to die yes is that he hurt destiny's grandson and this is her actual child And she's just like, "Mm, no, sorry, because the relationship with Destiny takes primacy and she doesn't care about this kid. No. And so that's what I think is interesting. It reminds me. That's Lenny's kid. (laughs) Right. It's Lenny Zauber's kid. And, you know, and Sabretooth's kid. She doesn't much like Sabretooth. So it's not, you know. But what I also like about it, it it reminds me of... um, Lucy Lawless, when she was doing interviews about Battlestar Galactica, or as she calls it, Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> One aspect of my character on Battlestar Galactica oh my, was... You're good at that. I've been told that my New Zealand's pretty good. My Australia's terrible. Let but... me... Can I, I want to hear you do it because you're probably better than us. We have this, you know, my friend Richard Lawson and my... Love Richard. ...boyfriend... Alex, we're hanging out one night. We were talking about Project Runway, and we we're talking about how, the, how unfortunately, Wendy Pipper passed away. Oh yeah. And we were just talking. We were, I don't know how we got into it, but we were saying her name in a New Zealand accent. Wendy Pippa. Wendy Wendy Pippa. Wendy Pippa. <laughs> it's just, oh, Wendy you're, Pippa. You're, you're good at it. I've just watched enough interviews with Lucy Laws where I can kind of just it's like one aspect of my character DNB is on Beetlestar Galactica was <laughs> I read a book about cold mothers, mothers who are sociopaths and can't feel that affection for the babies. And I thought it was so interesting <laughs> that I incorporated that into the character. So that's sort of the position that Dean is coming from. And I actually really think that's one of the scariest things there is in fiction is like 
a mother who feels no love. Yes. And it's because that's something we expect from women. Like it's a sexist expectation. Right. But we also like all need our moms to whatever extent. And so a mother who doesn't feel anything about you is scary. A mother who's willing to kill her child. It's the Medea thing, right? Oh, like, yeah. And Medea even does feel something about her children. She's just like, well, they've got to go because they wouldn't do well without me. Well, into the framework of like scale, um, I think that's also why I've always been sort of drawn to her too, because to me, yeah, like being capable of assassinating your son out of these, out of your own sort of personal feelings about it to me is a more engaging story than like, you know, apocalypse wanting to destroy the world or whatever. Right. For, for God it's knows, very whatever personal. Reason. Her stories are always very personal. Yeah. And usually related to her children, her, th- her three children and the ways she feels about each of them differently. And I do think it's a shame that Nightcrawler isn't her biological child with destiny, which is what Claremont wanted to do. Because I think that the stuff where like she can't kill him with the robots, and whatnot, that's Claremont. Right. I think the reason she feels that way about Nightcrawler in the 80s stuff is because the reveal was going to be Destiny gave birth to this child. Well, are we at the segment where we're talking about what we want to do with the character? <laughs> Let's do that. Yeah. Okay. We don't know anything about Mystique's childhood at all. We know, according to her, that she turned blue and took on her current form when she was about 12. She wasn't born blue like Nightcrawler, which is significant, actually, I think. Mm-hmm. Mystique has always been ambivalent about gender Claremont has said to him, in his mind, Mystique doesn't have gender, that she is an entirely fluid being. Right. The idea was that she had taken on a male form to impregnate Destiny with Nightcrawler. Sometimes Claremont's implied also Rogue was supposed to be theirs, biologically. That obviously, in neither case, is what happened. But Claremont did manage to put out there that Mystique was presenting male when she and Destiny met. I think that just like Bobby, the most significant thing you can do in terms of queer characters is to take a really popular, and Bobby wasn't even that popular, but to take a really prominent character who has a legacy and say, this is the character. Because new characters, it's hard to make them stick. It just is. And if you took Mystique, who is one of the most popular and recognizable characters in the entire X-Men franchise and said, Mystique is trans and has been this entire time. I would love to hear, you know, like, I'm, I am not someone of, of trans experience. Right. I'm interested, I guess, if you are a trans person who listens to this, I would be interested to hear what you think. When she sort of started clicking to me as a queer icon when I was in high school, I, I spent some time thinking about that as well. Because... I also, you know, have a little bit of the worry of like, oh, well, is this like a crazy De Palma situation now if she's, if they say she's like a trans woman specifically. Again, let's have 10 trans characters on Krakoa. You know what I mean? Like, let's right. do it if we're going to do it. It's the fucking Axemen. Let's right. do it. For all intents and purposes, you could do that and it would change very little about her day to day. Changes nothing about the character yeah. at all. Yeah. I don't know. I am interested in hearing trans opinions on this. So if you are a trans listener of Cerebro, please do write in cerebrocast at gmail.com and I will discuss on a future episode. What other storylines would you like to talk about before we get into reader questions? No, I think the reason that, and we, we, you know, we talked about it a little bit, I think the reason that Messiah Complex is, was such a standout to me is it, it also in, in so many ways, you know, even precluding Get Mystique and the death of Wolverine, it feels like the series finale of like her storyline yeah, with Rogue and and everything. Cause it really seems after that, like Rogue kind of, you know, it, it 
Rogue's kind of done with her. Exactly. That, to some extent. It's the moment where Rogue finally goes, you know what? You're my mother and I love you, but also like, please never speak to me again. Like this exactly. is too toxic. I can't do this anymore. Exactly. And it also is in many ways, the end of the, you know, so to speak, the end of the, the destiny diaries storyline as well, yes. because they all, they gambit bolt burns them all up or something. There are so many like fierce turns in Messiah complex for her and it all culminating in her, like with, she she wins essentially yeah. like by all accounts and it's really exciting to see the villain let alone my favorite villain um in the, in that sort of anti-hero triumphant context, triumphant and win and i love the subversion just in terms of like narratives about female villains because you'll note it's batman's female villains that all become heroes over time right there is this idea that a woman can't really be evil like there has to be some good in you and the way Carrie plays with Mystique as this, because in the 90s, she kind of was this like Catwoman mm-hmm. or Harley Quinn type of character where she was becoming reformed. She was still a bad girl, but in the way that Elektra is a bad girl, but will still help the Avengers. Yeah. The way Carrie writes it is making you think that's what's going on and we're doing a full redemption story for Mystique. And then, oh, actually, surprise, Mystique is evil as shit she's the she's the head honcho she's the one who was turning turning all of this around yeah she you kills and Sinister. if you thought yeah. because she's a mom mm-hmm. because she's a woman because any of these things if you thought that that makes her weak or incapable of being ice cold in the pursuit of her own ends you were mistaken she tries to fully kill baby hope to yeah. revive rogue and it's it it works, but the baby hope survives, and it so revolts Rogue that her yeah. that Mystique's it's award just... for winning, she finally won. She finally got it over on literally everyone. Yeah, and it, we gotta get one over on all these guys. We, we, the explosion <laughs> explosion at the wig factory. She, Amy Adams would be a fun Mystique, actually. Oh, she would yeah. actually kill that. She could do it. Um, she wins, and her her reward is that Rogue is like truly and well done with her and i think we even it's so i think it i think it actually does end sort of that paradigm in you know in in the krakoa times like rogue's been going through it in excalibur and like i don't think Mystique gives a shit or there's anything about no it, it seems they like, haven't really they haven't really interacted and you know i'm curious what they're going to do with that because my dream storyline before krakoa and it could still happen but maybe it feels a little different now is sort of a, a retcon fantasia a bit because I've always wanted a, a very like almost a national treasure type situation mm-hmm. about like the last I always I always expected like the last destiny diary to be in like the Vatican or something. I would not be surprised if that's where Hickman's going. Actually. I mean, because if Moira won't let destiny come back, destiny has to somehow communicate whatever it is Moira doesn't want anyone to know. Right. And Destiny loves notes. Destiny loves writing shit down. Right. Destiny loves leaving things for you to find them in a an unexpected place mm-hmm. that she knew you would find them at because she foresaw you finding them. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I think there's absolutely a chance that where this ends up going is that there is another diary that they never knew about because Destiny hid it on Krakoa for all we know like right. you know like she could have buried it beneath the earth of Krakoa 50 years ago I I would not be shocked at all if that's one of the reveals to come is that Destiny left more writing behind she must have and you know it's probably going to play out differently I always pictured it 
as a sort of like globe trotting Vatican national treasure like a heist. situation, like a high situation. And I always wanted it to be in the Vatican because I also wanted it to undo the Kurt the stuff. Yeah. And I wanted it to be that she finds out that it was the opposite of that plan that was originally in canon, I think where it was the Vatican who were trying to convince us that demons were real and it was a it was a splinter group it was the church of humanity which was right. like this weird offshoot right. that wanted to end the catholic church it was right. complicated but i wanted to be the opposite and have that be the reveal that like the catholic church was trying to convince us that demons are real and kurt's actually not a demon he's just a mutant and that he is and that he's destiny's son with with mystique yeah that's what i want i am desperate for them to find i mean i know that hickman and jordan white and the other you know people over there right now are into additive rather than destructive stories so i think they're hesitant generally to undo the work of other writers yes absolutely so i i understand if they don't want to undo the draco but i feel like if there is one thing that it would be worth doing right now when mystique and destiny's relationship is really important to the status quo mm -hmm. it would be retconning it so i mean azazel is satan he lies like just exactly say that just make it claremont's plan make it canon mm -hmm. make it real mm -hmm. i just think it would be really cool and the other thing is I've talked about the Draco a lot on this podcast because to many people it is infamous as the worst X-Men story or whatever. And it's interesting. A listener sent me an interview that I want to listen to because I haven't listened to it yet about how Chuck Austin was young when he took over the X-Men and didn't have a ton of oversight on the book and is kind of now like, oops, you know, mm. it's a story, as I've said, that really undermines Kurt as a character and also really undermines Warren as a character. So it came up again last week. But the character it undermines most is Mystique. Yeah. Because it's not enough to be like, in this story anyway, it, it would be one thing if Azazel was another person like Sabretooth who Mystique had had a child with mm -hmm. and it wasn't a big deal. Sometimes that just happens because it's pre-birth control pills and she fucks a lot as part of her spy shit. Instead, Austin portrays it as she truly falls in love with Azazel. And it's so out of character to me. First so of all, bizarre. because I don't like the idea of Mystique being truly in love with anyone but Destiny. I just don't buy it. A. Yeah, agree. B, it just really feels, it just feels misogynist to me. It's just like, I, and I don't think it was meant to be, but Mystique is a character who is defined by the fact that no man has ever been able to make her feel less than. Right. Ever. Right. And for this man to have seduced her, made her fall in love with him, and then abandoned her annoys the shit out of me. It doesn't fit the character and it's insulting to the character. Yeah, no, and just in the sort of the the ground level of like the idea of her being fooled, her being like right. taken in. No one fools Mystique. No, like, it's just annoying. And he also names her, which is gross. That is the thing that makes me crazy. Me too. It's really, is really that crazy. He tells her she has a certain Mystique and the implication is that's where she takes the code name from and I hate that. I hate it. I it I hate it as much as like when newscasters on shows are like some kind of daredevil in hell's kitchen. 
<laughs> it's that sort of awful, but plus misogyny and plus like taking her agency away, which is like, she's all agency. And it's funny because it doesn't bother me that Polaris gets her codename from Eric the Red or that Psylocke got her codename from Mojo, because I think that both of those women are people where their storyline, Lorna and Betsy's storylines, is often that they are dragged into situations without their consent or knowledge and make the best of it. Like that's sort of what they both do. I didn't want to be this, but now I am. And what do I? What am I going to do with that? This is this this mantle has been thrust upon me, and I'm going to deal with it. Or like my body has been taken away from me, and what does that make me feel? Or Mystique's story has always been about coming from a place of self-assurance and knowing, even if she doesn't remember who she was when she was born, knowing who she is. Yes. And knowing that she is Mystique. Mm -hmm. And the idea that a man who she was in love with, who did not reciprocate and was exploiting her, gave her that name, annoys the living shit out of me. Me too. I really hate it. And what I choose to believe, the way I've managed to make it work in my head, is that, like, she was already calling herself that and he was, like, reading her mind or something. I'm like, because I hate it so much that I just have to... I'm such a canon cherry picker. I just ignore it. I don't... I, I'm so... I try to ignore the Draco as best I can, and so do all writers, by the okay. way, <laughs> yeah. who work on these characters. But I... I don't know. I truly, I truly just hate that. So that's probably a good note to move to reader questions on because as always, it all comes back around to the Draco. Max Huftelin writes, and Max just got a question read last week. So good questions, Max. My question for the Mystique episode concerns her film portrayals. Whenever I show a friend unfamiliar with comics, the comic version of Mystique with her fabulous skull belt and white outfit, they're shocked as they mainly know the nude look from the movies. What do you think of her portrayal in film and what would you like to see in future portrayals? One of my biggest gripes with the X-Men movies is the lack of distinctive and iconic costumes, so I'd definitely cheer if MCU Mystique had a big skull belt. I actually don't hate the Rebecca Romaine look. No. I think it's clever because the thing about Mystique that has always been a little disturbing when you think about it for too long is, is her that her clothes are her skin. Her clothes are her skin. Yeah. Because she is nude. And that's why it's even weirder that when she gets knocked out, she takes on that form with the white outfit, because that means that she has somehow set that as like, this is what I look like when I'm not using my power. Like Michael Kors. Like it's a, if you knocked him out. Yeah, like it's be, the outfit. If you, you knocked generate... him out, he would be in that outfit. Right. Yeah. She can't be wearing clothes because she doesn't have the power to alter clothes. So everything that she's wearing has to be an extension of herself. And when you think about it for too long, you're like, whoa, and it's comics. And so you try not to think about it too much. Yeah. Especially when she like seduces someone and you like see her take off a turtleneck and you're like, what and is you're that? Like, what? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, I have to gross. assume that if she knows she's going to have to disrobe, she puts some clothes puts on, but on. I just don't know. I do the same. Yeah. So the movie concern here, actually, I think was less about not wanting to do a cool costume, which was obviously a thing that's annoying about those movies. They put everyone in a boring cat suit. But in this case, I think it was actually them thinking, how can we make this make sense in visual language on screen? And so the scales turning over on her body and shifting into clothes in a sort of butterfly effect was a very smart way to do that. Now, is it also that they hired supermodel Rebecca Romaine and thought it was fun to body paint her and have her run around naked? Obviously. Supermodel slash actress Rebecca Romaine. <laughs> Star of Femme Fatale. Oh my God. And, and uh, Pepper Dennis. <laughs> yes. Point is, Rebecca Romaine is great in that role. She's so good. She's really good. The thing about movie mystique that I don't like, and this became incredibly emphasized in the reboot movies with 
Jennifer Lawrence Mm -hmm. is what we were just talking about with the Draco, really, which is that Mystique is never subordinate to a man. No. Ever. And I don't like that in the original X-Men movies, those first three, she is Magneto's henchman. She's a Bond girl. Yeah. She's a Bond girl. Yeah. It's just not Mystique to me because the point of Mystique is that she starts her own Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. She doesn't work for Magneto. There are times in the comics where she's like doing a job for Mr. Sinister or whatever. And it's interesting in her first appearances in Ms. Marvel, she has an unseen boss who she calls Lord, Lord. who's implied to be a man. But they never tell you who it is. Completely dropped. It's not, <laughs> it's it's something Claremont quickly realized. You know she what? Was, Why does she have a boss? That's she was stupid. just straight up religious that week and she was just... It only happens in one issue and yeah. she like talking to a hologram that you can't see and it's just like you know what never mind and i think that it's unfortunate that in those movies she is a bond girl henchman because she's the successor to magneto she's not his employee in the comics then the big problem i had was in first class they give her an origin story where first of all she's not an immortal mutant like in the comics she is not hundreds of years old Mm -mm. and she's xavier's little sister so bizarre like he adopts her it's the insistence in those movies on tying her to these male characters is very weird to me they could just know her i don't understand why he like, has to there's be no need for it and it makes her subordinate to his storyline in a way that i found annoying and then i also thought that the way that they wrote the character and the way that Jennifer Lawrence played the character in part because they cast Jennifer Lawrence before she was the biggest movie star in the world. And then she became for a while the biggest movie star in the world. And so they had to make her the star. It's weird to see something play out that, cause this would be a windfall for most people. And I'm sure the executives felt this way, but you can tell that sort of the movie, you could tell she was real annoyed that she had signed that contract. Them and the movie itself. And like its whole existence feels like, Oh fuck. We got stuck with a movie star. Like, Oh fuck. She's a movie star. We have, she's a movie star now. We have to rewrite the movie bummed about because like, obviously you would want that, but like it, it obviously shoehorns them into like strange places that they they have to put her front and center once you're oscar winner jennifer lawrence you right. don't want to spend six hours in makeup anymore playing a character you don't want to play i just can't tell you how surreal it is like mystique is my lifelong favorite character in any medium to see her become this a-list front center of the poster character middle of the poster leading the x-men it is so bizarre to me because like hero it, it, yeah it, it doesn't it's it, like if Messiah Complex was played completely straight yeah. and Mystique does become the heroic leader of the X-Men, which yeah. is insane. Yeah. And so like, it, and it doesn't map to like what I know about her. And so it, it feels this, if it, it's just always been so discordant to me to watch that happen. It was, it was very surreal. Well, and that I think is the problem with the Fox X-Men movies generally is that outside of Xavier and Magneto, who are done very well, most of the characters are completely unrecognizable as themselves. That's true. Um, I think Jean... Jean's pretty good. Jean's pretty pretty good. good. Famke Janssen's good. Jean is pretty good. I do think, though, that casting a significantly younger actor as Cyclops throws off the Jean and Cyclops thing so completely that it sort of fucks up Jean because that relationship is so important. I think that's true. I I don't ship them as a couple particular. If anything, you're obviously eroticized the Logan relationship much more, which I do find real. But like, 
it should be at the expense of the Scott one. Scott and Gene in the movie has become this weird kind of hot for teacher thing where it's like, how did they meet? How did this happen? Because Scott and Gene's whole deal is that they're the high school sweethearts. I mean, that's the whole thing. That's why Morrison's new X-Men is so good because it's illustrating that sometimes those relationships are not built to last because the fact that you were soulmates at 17 doesn't mean you're soulmates at 33. Right. Yeah, I think Famke Janssen is great casting, and I think that she plays the character very well, but I think that throwing off that triangle so profoundly the way that they do... Because Wolverine is not supposed to be Jean's true love. Wolverine is supposed to be a bit of strange that Jean is tempted by when Cyclops annoys her. Yeah. And it's a temptation. Yeah. It's not the grand love story. And it gets compounded, of course, by the fact that James Marsters didn't do the third movie. Right. So they kill him off. But <laughs> even before that, though, the the sense that he's her boy toy, it just really makes the whole thing seem bizarre to me. Well, you can tell where the, the POV on that one came from. But it... yeah, well, you know, we do know. I mean, frankly, given who cast that movie, it's shocking that he was over 17. What works for me for the mystique in those movies, though, is it's obviously it's not my ideal and like the look i think it's sort of a happy accident because i think you're right i think it is absolutely meeting the challenge of sort of answering a question with the clothes thing like this actually makes more sense for her to look this way yeah and although they abandon it in the later movies that she would also be proud of that look is also something cool that they completely get rid of that yes and i do think in the mcu when they bring in Myst- i mean again i would prefer to keep the x-men separate but i'm sure they won't i would like to see a more classic look me too like that looks like the comics but i do think that it was a clever idea she looks kind of like sill from species also mm-hmm. like it was very of the moment yeah it's i think it was a clever design Whereas I think most of the Fox X-Men designs are not clever. Well, exactly. Uninspired. And what's so cool about it, and I think what I, what I why I accepted it, even though it was a little strange, it was a little jarring for me at first when I opened that, uh, that wizard issue and saw it for the first time or whatever, <laughs> is because the rest of them were so stark and black and uninspired that she, that they went like kind of balls to the wall in like a really weird direction with hers. Yeah. Made me, made me be like, oh, it made me like, it made, me, it made up for the things I didn't like about it. It made the visual language of the film more exciting because the visual language of the film is not exciting and she spiced it up. Though I wish she would let her hair down. <laughs> yeah, no. To the point where in the comics for a second after the movie, they had her get transformed into like that, that I version of herself, which was awful. But that they I hated. did it. They did it on Evolution second. too. And I hated it. And then they completely times. were like, never mind. It's so, it's probably a pain in the ass to draw. It mm-hmm. makes her, you know, I like we actually we touched on this earlier, but like I kind of, you know, she's obviously a babe because everyone's a babe in comics, but like, yeah, I kind of miss when she's a little rangier and a little more intense looking. Yeah, in the original Ms. Marvel issues where she's the villain, she has a sort of sharp bird like quality yeah. and yeah. looks a little older. She looks about 45, she's 50. 40. To me, she's 45 forever. Yeah. yeah. And I think adding the scales in comic form especially because like at that time the art was like pretty goofy too like it was like yeah crazy. not great i think they just had a really hard time making her look hot with all of it and they were like no fuck this this is a bad yeah idea. they dropped it pretty <laughs> much immediately yeah <laughs> but yeah i want a classic i want you know and i think they will obviously they're not going to make her walking around nude but it's like 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 nightcrawler it's a costume that they they made and they have never topped and has never really changed like and they it's iconic. You don't need to do anything with it. I mean, are they going to put a skull on her forehead? I hope so. I Maybe hope a not. One. But put a little one on her forehead. It's cool. Just cool. do it. Just do it. It's cool. Just make it cool. Yeah. 
So we have one question that is not related to Mystique, but that I think is really interesting. And so I wanted to pose it because I thought it would be cool to talk about it. And also, actually, it opens with, as a trans woman, it is always refreshing for me to see discussions of superheroes that aren't from a strictly white cis heterosexual perspective. So thank you, Clover Darling, for writing in. And I would love if you would write in again about the mystique concept that we were discussing. Incredible name. Also, yeah, great name. Really good. So Clover writes... I'm writing to ask you about the sliding timescale that the Marvel Universe operates on. Hell yeah. First of all, do you even think that the sliding timescale is a good thing? And secondly, which character do you think is negatively affected by the sliding timescale the most? How do you feel about proposed fixes to the sliding timescale while still attempting to stay true to the heart of the character, such as the idea of recontextualizing Magneto as a survivor of the Rwandan genocide rather than being a Holocaust survivor? Previously, I was reading DC almost exclusively, so I'm more familiar with their sliding timescale than I am with the Marvel timescale. I don't even know if there's a difference. While I liked the sliding timescale in DC because I don't like the idea of losing all the characters I love, it does result in a phenomenon that I call lost decades, in which there are only ever three periods of time that matter, those being the Golden Age in the 40s, the nebulous 15 to 20 years ago when all the Silver Age heroes existed, and the present day. This leaves all the decades in which these superheroes were previously active to be left empty as decades where nothing was happening. How do you feel you might fix this, or do you think it even needs fixing and is better left unaddressed? Thank you for your time, Clover Darling. First of all, great question, very comprehensively thought out. To start, the DC sliding timescale is different in one specific way, which is that DC has reset their continuity like five times. So first it was Crisis on Infinite Earths in the 80s, then it was Zero Hour in the 90s, then it was Infinite Crisis and Final Crisis in the aughts, which made small changes, and then in 2011 they did the Flashpoint New 52 that was a complete reboot of the line. And then, more recently, they did Rebirth, which restored some of the stuff from before Flashpoint. It's too much. <laughs> and even before the Crisis on Infinite Earths, they had done a thing where they established that the Golden Age versions of a lot of characters lived on Earth 2, which was an alternate timeline, which is how you could justify Batman having Golden Age adventures in World War II, and also Batman being a contemporary 30-something in the 70s. So... They had found a lot of ways to do that. Marvel has never reset their timeline ever. And I prefer that. Same. Because, like you said, losing all the characters you care about is rough. I got really into DC after the decimation because I was so bummed about that that I started reading DC. And I fell in love with characters like Renee Montoya, for example. And then the New 52 erased Renee Montoya from existence. And eventually she came back, but all of the stories that I love never happened. And I just don't enjoy that. So for me, I prefer the way Marvel does it. But there are limitations. The way Marvel's works is everything that has happened since the Fantastic Four went to space has to be truncated in time. And that happens in 1961. There are a lot of things that that messes with. For example, the Fantastic Four go to space because it's the space race. The fact that Magneto is a Holocaust survivor is because the Holocaust was only 20 years ago. In those days, you could tie characters very specifically to historical events. I think that the characters that are most negatively affected by it now 
are characters who are specifically tied to an event or to, more importantly, a political mood or moment. So like the character that I think is most damaged by the sliding timescale, and I've said this before on the podcast, is Colossus. Because Colossus is a character who is entirely about the Cold War and the tension between the U.S. and the Soviet Union and about communism and about being a Soviet citizen who believes in communism and bringing that perspective to the team. And now, because of the sliding timescale, Colossus cannot have lived in the Soviet Union. He was born after it fell Mm -hmm. because he's at most 30, 31, 32. I'm 32, and I was born around when the Berlin Wall came down. Mm-hmm. That's just a thing now that you have to deal with. And with Xavier and Magneto, they have been killed off, de-aged. They've done things in the text that have made it okay. Or Captain America now has just been frozen for a lot longer. I mean, the interesting thing about Captain America is in the 60s stories when he's unfrozen, he wasn't frozen that long. Yeah, it was a long weekend. Yeah, I mean, the funniest thing is Sharon Carter, his love interest, (laughs) was originally Peggy's younger sister. Right. And then became her niece and then became her great niece. And it just keeps because now he was frozen for 70 years. I don't know what's grosser, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird altogether, but uh, there's always just a weirdness to that relationship. I didn't fuck your sister. I fucked your granddaughter. I fucked your great niece. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, it's not. It's I'm not a ideal. normal guy. I'm normal. To go to your question, if you're going to reframe a character, the thing you don't want to do is go to a new historical event Agreed. to say it's the Rwandan genocide. Now, you're just going to have the same problem pretty quickly. So what you'll see now in Marvel Comics is that characters who have military history were in the war or Mm. were overseas. You know, no one's origin story was tied to 9-11 because by then they knew it's going to get outmoded. At this point, most of the X-Men began their superhero careers after 9-11 per the sliding timescale because none of them have aged that much. In the early 80s, Scott says that he's 30. He says that the plane crash where he when he was 10 was 20 years ago when he's confronting Corsair. Scott is still about 30. He's like 34, 35 maybe now. They're never going to address on panel how old he is because they don't do that anymore. But in that issue where he says he's 30, Kitty Pride is 13 and she's now about 25. So it is a soap opera situation where you age and everybody just sort of becomes closer in age. So the characters that it really hurts are, like I said, characters like Colossus where they don't make sense anymore because their political milieu no longer exists. Darkstar defected from the Soviet Union, and that's important. So Darkstar is now weird to use because she's still a Russian superhero, but she can't have defected from the Soviet Union. Karma was a refugee of the Vietnam War, whose origin story is that her family was captured and tortured by Thai pirates during the boat refugee period. It's very specific. Storm is less affected by it because the explosion that kills Storm's parents doesn't have to be the Suez crisis. Mm -mm. But when you're coming out of a specific thing, karma is coming out of the Vietnam War being a topical concern. And this is our Vietnamese heroine who is joining up with these American heroes. And much like Colossus, it's an international solidarity thing in the wake of a conflict. That character has floundered somewhat as well because she can no longer have that context. But not as badly as Colossus because his whole vibe now doesn't make sense. Gabrielle Haller is the other character it's really rough on. That's Legion's mother because she has to be a Holocaust survivor, which means that Legion has to have been born in like the 50s, 
which means that Legion should be, I mean, that she should be in her 80s now and Legion should be a much older man than he is, even if Xavier has been de-aged, but Legion is still about 25. So they haven't. <laughs> now, the thing about Legion is his dissociative identity disorder that is affected by his mutation makes him shapeshift. So, you know, maybe he is 60 and it's sure. just shapeshift. I don't know. The point is, this is a concern they're never going to deal with anymore, especially now on Krakoa, because who knows what age people are resurrecting at. I think that the other characters it really hurts are teen characters and young characters. I think especially when their youth is in opposition to someone else, like, slightly older than them. Yes. Like, I think, like, Jubilee specifically is tough for yes. me. Because I think Scott's a little older than you do, but, like... Well, I'd love for him to be 40. I'm I just think saying Marvel doesn't... But Marvel doesn't... Here's the thing. He was 14 when the Fantastic Four landed, and it's only been about 20 years. Right. That's the thing. Like, it's, no, it's, I know I'm they just, don't yeah. agree. Yeah. But I, I like him around 40 and he's, that's where I'd like him to be. He's like a hot 42 I'm compromising by saying I'll take him at yes. 34, 35 but if Jubilee we must. But Jubilee especially, like how other characters, if other characters relate to a character specifically because of their youth and like through that lens, yeah. that gets tough. Like I feel like they finally, finally have let Kitty kind of become something else. Kitty is now like 25, 26 and, and it's they allowed. Treat her, and they like treat her And they treat her like purpose. an adult. She's like, call me Kate, please. Exactly. The way that yeah. she was Kate in Days of Future Past Which as her older self. because I feel like the one thing... She'll always be Kitty to me, but it's a cute nod. Me too. And I, I love when I love when Emma calls her kitten. But I think the one thing that I, I feel I've always felt left out from by not getting to read the best Claremont stuff as it was coming out week to week was genuine noticeable aging and growth in because they used to age kitty yes. used to have birthdays on panel that's insane to me i would like kill for that but it's never i know. I'm never gonna get there it. was a christmas issue every year exactly. like it was that was a thing i'm never the characters gonna aged in real time the only thing that we ever had like that was dc let vertigo do that so oh. john constantine aged in real time and by the end of the vertigo line he was like almost 60 oh, cool. and now he's just been shoved into the main dc universe and is like 30 again but they used to let vertigo because it was separate from the dc titles that are the main universe those characters would age in real time that's cool but that's what's exciting about it feels like in the last two years they they let kitty noticeably grow up yeah but the problem that it creates and i've mentioned this in passing on the podcast before but it is a problem is that each new era of the X-Men, because it's in part about a school and about training the new generation, introduces a new crop of students. But because all the characters can only age so much, because the original X-Men are not allowed to be older than about 35, that means Kitty can't be a lot older than 25 ever, mm -hmm. which means the New Mutants also have to be 25 to 28, roughly, the first class of New Mutants, which means Gen X has to be in their early to mid 20s and everyone is getting closer and closer in age and now you have 50 characters ranging from about 18 to 28 who are the students mm -hmm. as opposed to the classic x-men and they are all competing for page time in the same books yeah and that is the char those are the characters that are most hurt. it is the five robins problem that tony and i were joking about which yeah. is how long at this point were these different kids students at xavier's it was like a correspondence course for two right. weeks because, you know, it doesn't really make sense if they're all about the same age, which they have to be in order for it to work. I mean, we finally have some, I feel like it always kind of, you need like a new bottom. I mean, yeah. don't, don't you always? But always. You, <laughs> I always do. Weekly. But they, you, so like adding like gold balls and like those people, 
up from the bottom kind of gives it always gets gives you a slightly different new framework to place them all and i feel like every time like a new era is starting i personally kind of resituated how old i think everybody is yeah but i do think that the new mutants and gen x are now about the same age and that age is like mid-20s and then the academy x kids are now like 1920 except right. like you know it's just it's one of those things where it's it's just it's tough and now they all are competing for page time in new mutants except for the rare ones who have managed to escape like monet who mm -hmm. the ones who have managed to become Monet's real adults yeah Monet was 25 the second she stepped into X Factor. Exactly. She went from like 16 to 25 yeah. overnight and she's just stayed there ever since. Well, so much of it also depends on like an agreement between the writer and the material because some of them just buy yeah. into it and some of them are like, no, some of them you can tell and sometimes it's just the artist, obviously, but sometimes you can tell that they're like, no, Jean is like a young, pretty girl. And I'm like, I yeah, you're like, what? Jean like, is what? like Juliana Margulies to me by now is like, she's like when Famke Janssen was cast, people were like, she's too old. And now yeah, I'm like, she'd be, too young. she'd be too I young. I mean, you know, I think that the characters, particularly that it impacts in a bad way. Jubilee is a really good example. Yeah. Jubilee has the Simpsons problem, mm -hmm. which is that Bart and Lisa Simpson are children of the eighties. And because they haven't been allowed to age, all of their cultural signifiers don't make sense. Their designs don't make sense. The skateboard and graffiti stuff is not, it's a very specific mm -hmm. moment in time that they're frozen in, except that the show has now gone on for 30 years and they have to pretend always that they are tweens now. Yeah. I want like a, a, an issue where Jubilee's like still hanging out at the arcade, but it's like it's right. Been a, like that's it's been a Jubilee is a mall <laughs> rat from 1989, yeah. and she was 13 in 1989. She was allowed to age to about 17 in Gen X. I would say she's now like 21 ish. That's it, and that's why I've said this before. I liked when they made her a vampire because I thought that was very funny. Hate because it. I thought it was so funny because that makes it fine that she's frozen in time and doesn't age sure i i wanted them to just give her the fireworks back and make it a twilight joke that she's a sparkle vampire i thought that would be really funny <laughs> yeah because now like why is she wearing a yellow trench coat and those pink sunglasses and... it fucking slaps <laughs> i mean i know and the style has come back around again actually i to like some when extent. they try and update it and it's like a new it's like a sleeker jump yeah, it's like cool jubilee and it's like jubilee is not cool no. anymore you have to let that go and i'm but I'm, charlie xcx would wear that outfit tomorrow oh, sure. so no. like fashions are cyclical but it makes sense but what's frustrating to me about what jubilee specifically is the, is the problem one for me because i, I especially because i love jubilee is that i because she's so frozen and so connected to that time i'm fine she's the one she would be my candidate other than kate to like let her actually grow up and like they kind of do by giving her i mean they a gave child, her a baby a but baby. it's but her whole but thing she is adopted like the a, baby she adopted a baby and the baby's still a baby because jubilee isn't allowed to age right. it's been like years now of her having an infant right well now he's a dragon or whatever but like, well yeah which is cool but yeah. you know but he i just want her i want them to kind of you know how this is a weird comparison or maybe it's not but like you know we're in heroes when that was a thing mm. um the was that was that his name was his name hero nakamura was that is that from yeah hero? his name was hero it was uh unsubtle you know how they you know they give you that glimpse of him in the future and like yeah you're like oh we're gonna get there one day and you just like never get even close to that 
I would love if Jubilee finally, if like they, if they gave us like cool adult, cool young adult Jubilee. That's what's really frustrating about Jubilee in particular, because we got that exact thing in the '90s. They showed us a flash forward exactly. where it's like Jubilee will one day be the most powerful X Men. Bishop talked a lot, oh, I, if, if I, I recall about correctly, this. about how Jubilee in the future was this important leader who was enormously powerful and who had gone beyond fireworks to do all kinds of cool plasma stuff. Yeah, and it's now been thirty-one years. <laughs> And she hasn't done any of that. I mean, same. <laughs> I mean, right, same. To, to, true. To the, to the date. Touche, right? Yeah, no, yeah. same. Exactly, right. I find that disappointing because in the same way that you're talking about, because Kitty Pride is becoming the Kate Pride from Days of Future Past. Exactly. We are, that is allowed to happen on the page. I mean, before I die, I want to see gray kitty in the green jumpsuit like in current timeline or whatever i like, mean i don't want the jumpsuit because that would be a jumpsuit. bad timeline uh, oh but... i know but i want to uh, so good i do want a story where kate has to go back in time and be like like has to be the kate that goes back in time i don't I want it to be days of future past but that would be cute to do right. have rachel get involved somehow like do that i mean mm -hmm. have rachel and kitty get involved in all sorts of ways they are currently. I mean, I'm more of a Kitty and Ileana person, but I... Oh, really? I want Rachel to be like a Gambit character, like Gambit pre-Rogue, where it's just like, I want Rachel to just mow through the <laughs> pussy of Krakoa sure, on a motorcycle sure. and sure. just like be the absolute like soft butch queen. I want yeah. her to be the Shane from the L word of Krakoa. Like, that's what I want. Oh, my God. But I do know that that's Claremont's OTP is Kitty and Rachel. So I do understand that that's... I miss human I miss human romantic relationships with them, which I now we're definitely out of because of that's like the antithesis of Krakoa. But I would love if especially... Well, I guess that is what they did with Northstar because they, had, they didn't know anyone else. But like, I would yeah, except love... that that sucks. I mean, exactly, that does suck. But <laughs> I do... Just because you, you could just tell they don't believe it. Like, that guy well, just because no one believes it because the character, his husband's not a real he's character. He's not a person. He's just like... I mean, like, I hope Leah can do something cool with it, but I'm just... I, it's, I it's could very, not care less in terms of anything I've read up to this point. Cheerios commercial gay couple. Truly, it's like... Yeah. Yeah. It does not work for me. But, but I do fine. want... Especially like, for Northstar, who's not domestic. Like, that's not his oh, vibe. Oh, yeah, exactly. Northstar is at the eagle on a friday night oh at 1 a.m making terrible decisions what's that's his, north Star. what's his husband's name kyle kyle you couldn't like, even remember you couldn't I even remember. remember he's at home watching tv or whatever he was at home watching tv when they were in like mojo world like last week <laughs> i know it's just it's 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 just not and and he's not even a character like candy southern or trish tilby where he wants to get involved in trish. shit i miss trish i want like something like that I, I mean, I was just, we just did the Warren episode and I, now all I want is to bring back Candy Southern. Oh, incredible. I would love it. Candy Southern rules. They should have like a little island like off of Krakoa that can't get to Krakoa where they just keep all their human friends that they <laughs> want to hang out with. Anyway, we've been talking for a while now. So I think now is a good time to do the Real Housewives game. Oh, gosh. If Raven Darkhoom were a cast member on The Real House of Krakoa, what would her tagline be? Okay, ready? It's so stupid. Go. <laughs> the reviews are in and critics are Raven. That's cute. <laughs> I like that because it, uh, mine was just really obvious and I like that you went to a different 
thing because mine was don't call me two-faced i've got a million of them oh that's really good i tend to just go to a i go to power a pun. pun i go to a pun i love a pun so in terms of story recommendations this is a little tricky with mystique because she's not one of the x-men so she doesn't appear like consistently in titles in the same way with those characters i can be like start with giant size x-men and just keep reading or whatever i would say that mystique in the classic stuff the ms marvel stuff can be a little hard to find but is worth reading if you can manage it the best mystique stuff in the 80s is in the early 80s when rogue joins the team mm-hmm. and in fall of the mutants where Rogue dies with the other X-Men in Dallas and Mystique is real fucked up about it. Allegedly. Well, they do die. They just come back real fast, but they don't tell anyone. (laughs) Yeah. We didn't talk much about it, but Mystique has this very interesting relationship with Forge because Forge is the one who works the spell that the X-Men have to die to power. And so she's like, you murdered my daughter. And then... He also allegedly let Destiny die in Europe. Right. When Destiny is about to die, she tells Mystique that Forge is going to be very important to her and that she shouldn't be so mean to Forge. And <laughs> Mystique is like, what? Mm-hmm. And then when Destiny is dying, she says to Forge, promise me that you will love her. And Forge is like, what? Yeah. Like, uh, Mystique? Yeah. Qua? And he's just, <laughs> and, but like, this woman's dying. So he's like, okay, sure, I guess. Sure, promise. And then in the 90s, when he and Storm break up, he ends up on X Factor with Havoc and Polaris and Mystique ends up on that team as well, sort of as like their prisoner slash teammate kind of. They have a relationship that's interesting. I think that that run, the the 90s X-Force run that she's in is pretty good. Yeah. If, if you can jump into like wherever that starts, I think that would be a great spot. But I would also recommend her, so, her weird solo series. That's the like... weird solo series is good. Mystique joins X-Factor in X-Factor 119. So if you could find that and you want to read it, it's a good time. And she's there for like 30 issues, I want to say. It's sort of the first Mystique tries to be a hero arc. I agree her solo series is good. I'm not a Decimation Era fan particularly, as I've said many times, but Messiah Complex is worth reading and she is great in that whole Mike Carey run. Mm-hmm. Oh, and there's one little there's one little miniseries, just Mystique and, and Sabretooth, if you can get that. That's super Yeah, that's well. interesting too. It fills in some of their backstory. She pops up in certain issues of Wolverine. The, the problem is just that because she's a villain, you can't just like go through no. a stretch of issues unless it's something like X Factor where she was on the team. I would start with X Factor if you're, if you're curious to jump in. Yeah, I think that that's a good one. I think that Fall of the Mutants is a good one if you want. That's when she's in Freedom Force. So mm-hmm. it's and Freedom Force and the X Men have to team up in Fall of the Mutants, and it's sort of an interesting story. And you get some of the her and Rogue stuff that's really good. I also think that. As always, like Dawn of X is really good. First of all, Mystique is great in House of X Powers of 10. Yep. And gets to do some fun spy stuff. And then in X-Men 6 of the new run by Jonathan Hickman, it's a Mystique issue that is all about how she is working for Xavier and Magneto because they have promised to bring Destiny back. But for some reason, they haven't yet. And Mm -hmm. she's starting to get frustrated. And then you get to see Destiny warning Mystique about Krakoa in the past. Uh, and that is a cool issue. And it's the one where Mystique, after 40-something years, refers to Destiny as her wife on panel, which is cool. 
those would be my story recommendations. Is there anything else about Mystique you would like to cover before we wrap up? I think that about covered it. I'm excited to see what they do with her. And um, I'm excited to see her show up in the in some kind of movie at some point and have it actually be her. Same. But, um, I'm just looking forward to it. I think I'm glad they didn't forget her. And in fact, she seems quite essential. So yeah, she's more important right now than she's been in since Messiah Complex, I would say. Which is great. Yeah. I always like when she's sort of center stage because she's a fascinating character. And so I can't wait to see where the Mystique and Destiny plot in particular goes in this new era. Thank you, Patrick, for being my guest. This has been a lot of fun. Why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you on social media and plug anything you might want to plug? Oh, sure. Um, so I'm at Patch Navalis, which is just Patch and then Sullivan backwards, um, on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and, you know, I'm I'm working, I'm the art, direct, art directing a new nonfiction in print at Simon Schuster, and we're kind of just getting off the ground. So I post a lot of new covers and new books I'm working on there and you can check all that out on both of those accounts. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can email your questions, comments, feedback to CerebroCast at gmail.com but please no more debates about Betsy Braddock becoming Captain Britain. <laughs> you can find every episode and transcripts of the episodes as I get them done at CerebroCast.com which is the official landing page I am having so much fun doing this podcast. I really appreciate all of the support. I have some really exciting guests lined up and I hope that you will continue to tune in. And uh, until next time, bye. Right, thank you for having me. This is so much fun. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. <laughs>